Hi everyone, this is Nautical Knowledge and Nonsense. In today's episode, I'm interviewing an old shipmate of mine, Josh Scornavacci, who was a survivor at the sinking of the HMS Bounty replica during Hurricane Sandy back in 2012. Josh recounts his harrowing experiences before, during, and after the hurricane and the sinking of his ship. We wrap up with some of Josh's suggestions for practical extreme weather survival gear from a survivor's perspective, and end on a happy note with his incredible first date with his now wife. The bounty story starts about a third of the way through the interview. However, I really recommend you listen to the entire interview. Josh, he talks about what got him into tall ships, and it really sets him up as a person and his experiences. But also, you really get to know the condition the bounty was in. And so, yes, it seems like a long lead-up, but I think it's all really important. Plus, there's no way I could leave out the cockroach story. It is probably one of the worst things I've ever listened to. <laughs> Anyhow, I hope you enjoy this episode with Josh Gorbachev. Something, please. Love it. Okay. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Nautical Knowledge and Nonsense. Uh, today, I have uh, one of my dearest old shipmates with me, Josh Scornavacci. He is incredibly talented in every way. Um, he has every everything around him. It If it's not an adventure, it will turn into an adventure. Uh, he's absolutely amazing that way. Uh, not sure what else to say. Uh, today we're gonna we're actually gonna talk about a serious topic. So Josh was in the sinking of the HMS Bounty replica during Hurricane Sandy in 2012. Yes, um, very tragic, loss of life involved. Uh, he's very open to telling this story, and so I hope everybody uh, respects that. Um, that said, before Josh talks, I gotta I gotta preface things. He's not stoned. So just keep that in mind when he talks. He has, and there's nothing wrong with him at all. He just talks in a way that's like, kind of like this, and now I'm doing an impersonation of you a little bit. So it could be the most exciting thing in the world, and he's going to sound like Eeyore on Valium. That's a, I don't know, does Valium do? I have no idea what Valium does. Anyway, um, yeah, I remember when I gave Josh his first job on Lady Washington, which is where I... Well, actually, that's not the first time I met you. I met you Contradance. Contradance. I remember that. That was cool. Um, and then I remember you applied to Lady Washington, and, and we actually all sat down as a crew because your your uh, resume was uh, you made it subtle. You you were you were on, and, and I'm serious. You, you were on Bounty until this date, and then until the date of its sinking. You didn't say sinking, but you gave the date that it sank. And of course, all of us knew that date quite well. So. Like, oh, wasn't that the month that, oh, crap. Yeah, so uh, that actually earned you a lot of points, believe it or not. <laughs> but I remember when we gave you the job and, and um, yeah, you were, uh, what was it? I, I was like, congratulations, you got the job. And you're like, okay, so I know I don't sound really excited right now, but I'm really thrilled. <laughs> All right. Anyway, that's enough of me talking. I'm, I'm sorry to take the limelight and poking fun at an old shipmate. But, uh, yeah, uh, Josh, you have an incredible story. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to do this interview. And uh, why don't we start from the beginning? What got you into tall ships? What got me into tall ships is a convoluted question. 
Um, well, I was into animals um, all my entire life. I liked animals, sharks, mostly predators, big cats, alligators, crocodiles, and I wanted to be able to study them more. And I knew that on a boat you had the opportunity to explore, like exploration. That's pretty much my life. I like to see and experience new things. And on a boat you get to see and experience new things a lot. And with the mobility of the boat you could get to different countries and different locations and study animals. I would have that that possibility um, if I knew how to sail. Unfortunately, I did not know how to sail. <laughs> So I looked at sailing lessons. They were too expensive. Um, and so I started to look at apprenticeships. I was like, well, sailing's been around for thousands of years. Maybe there's a boat that will have an apprentice. And there's a, there's a secret reason I also started sailing. There was a girl that I liked at the time. Um, it's currently my wife. And she said that if I had my own boat and moved to uh, the Virgin Islands, that she would move there with me. So that was another little motivation to learn how to sail, even though we weren't dating at the time. Anyway, um, <laughs> I got on this uh, this boat called the Clearwater, which is Pete Seeger's old sloop. And um, I did not realize it was a tall ship until I was there. I thought it was just a big fiberglass sailboat and that I was going to learn how to sail. But it was a whole new world. Um it just makes me think of that Aladdin song. But it was a whole new world. And uh, <laughs> I learned that um, it was a small world, too. Like, uh, all of the sailors. <laughs> Great. Now everybody's going to have a song stuck in their head for the next hour and a half. <laughs> just Disney. Um, <laughs> so uh, there's not that many tall ship sailors. And so they tend to know each other and uh, have stories to tell about other boats and so while I was on Clearwater, I started to learn about all these other options, all these other tall ships, all these other people and their adventures. And I heard about the Bounty, and I was like, oh, that's a grand boat, and it's planning on... It just got back from Europe, and it's planning on going back to Europe. And they even had talked about um, going up and doing the Northwest Passage, and I was like, well, that sounds like an adventure. And, man, I'd see a lot of whales and other animals while learning how to sail on that boat and so I applied alright what was your first impression of the boat when you showed up I showed up at 3 in the morning in old San Juan it was pouring rain actually the street was flooded so I was walking through water and when I got to the dock and I looked up it was like lightning and pouring rain and this huge ominous shadowy pirate ship so intimidating actually wow but pretty grand um yeah i was impressed it it was a lot bigger than i thought it would be doesn't sound that big you know 180 feet long doesn't sound that big but it was built in a way where it was very tall it was very wide and broad kind of like lady washington even though it's the same dimensions kind of as mirror walled it looks like twice the size yeah um so it had that effect and I got up on deck and immediately fell down the steps. Woke up the person who was on duty because I didn't realize that, that it had a half spiral staircase. I didn't realize how slippery the steps were. 
<laughs> so I fell down the steps. He instantly knew what happened because apparently that happens a lot on that boat. <laughs> oh, wow. And, uh, uh, yeah. Why would you ever make something safe? If, yeah. <laughs> if, oh my gosh. Um, I was going to say with Bounty, um, yeah, so 180 feet doesn't sound like much, but how, what was her tonnage? Because a lot of people, you, you say the tonnage of these boats, and all of a sudden they're like, oh, okay, this is this is a heavy boat. Yeah, you needed a 500 ton license to drive Bounty. Yeah. It's a big boat. Yeah, so definitely above our above our licenses yeah uh, all right awesome so what was your first what was your first sale like on bounty your first night out transiting that kind of thing yeah so the first uh day sailing on bounty was actually the best day um or one one of the best days i've ever had out on the water mm. it was my first day sailing in the ocean and we had just gotten done a big maintenance period in Puerto Rico for a whole month. So I'd been on the boat for a month, but we hadn't sailed at all. Um, I don't know. It wasn't a training sail either. Um, so we just, uh, <laughs> no training sail. <laughs> so we just uh, we went a uh, really long trip. If it's going to happen, it's going to happen out there. <laughs> yeah. I believe it was about a 14-day transit, 12 or 14 days long long transit for my first transit at sea and um, we left uh, Puerto Rico and the water was beautiful very clear you could see pretty far um, very blue and um, immediately they were flying fish everywhere and it was the first time I ever saw them so that was exciting for me and they weren't the small ones you see in California they were like the ones that are about three feet long so big flying fish they can skip across a football field in like three jumps is really cool to see as, as somebody who went to school for biology and the study animals that's that was exciting yeah it's really hard for people to visualize what they actually look like in real life like i remember i was so impressed like yeah it's it's magical you you just that's why i put them in my second kids book because i'm like they're, yeah they're amazing they're yeah, crazy you just, it, you, you just look at it and you're like this can't be real yeah, anyway i'm sorry josh i interrupted oh no that's it's, it's it's a cool thing to talk about. They go so far, it just doesn't look physically possible. Yeah. The swish of their tail and their 100 feet uh, yep. jump, which is amazing. Um, but they were jumping like that because they were being chased by a megapod of uh, common dolphins, which are also really beautiful. Um, so most people know what bottlenose dolphins look like, but common dolphins are smaller and very colorful. They've got yellow and gray and black and all sorts of beautiful patterns we actually saw a little bit uh on the way in yeah i know boat. i <laughs> i was concentrating on the channel so yeah. uh, for those of you who know we we uh, yeah josh and i just came in on the aj mirwald which is a schooner so we were talking about the different rigging the bounty being a square rigger yeah the square riggers look bigger even if they're dimensionally not uh, but yeah, so we were we were going down the channel, AJ Mirwald. It's a channel I've never been in. Lots of current. Uh, yeah, I was not concentrating on on the freaking dolphins. They were dolphins. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely guys. <laughs> um, but then yeah, we uh, climbed a loft. That was my first time going a loft underway. Um, so I climbed a loft and set the topsail. We went on the head rigs, set the fore topmast staysail. And we sailed off, and we with the dolphins following and the, and the flying fish, 
and we ended up getting into a pretty big squall like the pretty the the largest storm we were in until the hurricane had about 14 foot swells and it was a wet ride really windy um, a lot of rain um, and so then we had to take in sail because it was too windy so I went out on the head rig and man what, on, what time of day is this oh probably about midday we left in the morning oh, okay. it's a couple hours the dolphins were following the boat. It was great. Mm-hmm. Um, and <laughs> so the bounty's bowsprit sticks out of the water about 40 feet at the tip. So really high, very steep. Mm-hmm. And we were getting pounded by waves out on the bowsprit. Oh, dear God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was a lot of water. <laughs> and um, Johnny Slanga um, was yelling something like, couldn't understand what he was saying because of the waves and the wind while we were out there but we got the sail in and we jumped back on deck and i asked him and he said i love my job and then i threw up everywhere (laughs) um (laughs) cleaned up the puke and then we laid aloft on the main to bring in the, the main topsail um so we get up there and if you've never been on a square rigger it's a ride in a swell um, because not only do you have the pendulum effect from the mast moving all around, and that intensifies all the swinging, but on the yard, it you know it goes side to side and fore and aft, and it wiggles and it, it smashes on things, and you get jolted around a lot out there. And I'm tiny, so I'm all the way out on the very tip of the yard arm, and uh, we get up there, and two humpback whales breached almost simultaneously on either side of the boat. It was like something from a dream. You couldn't make it up. And it was amazing. And then, like I said, the water was clear. And so from all the way up um, in the rigging, you were able to see uh, the other whales that were in the pod. And there are about eight humpbacks all together with the dolphins, the flying fish still jumping. And we're in this big storm. So all this together is making furling the sail take forever. We're just looking around, just super distracted. Um, by the time we get the sail furled and we start to lay back to deck, I start to feel seasick again. And so I puked again. Didn't hit anybody, but it did go across the deck. So I had to clean that up. Um, then I was on watch for four hours. Bounty did things differently. They had a four-hour watch where you're doing forward lookout, helm, boat check and various other things and then immediately after a four hour maintenance period and then you're four hours off so a longer day than most uh, tall ships um so then i was on and, and sometimes the maintenance period was before the watch which is the case here so i was on my four hour watch and uh still puking i would hand off the helm go throw up go back take the helm again do a boat check come up throw up go back finish the boat check and then um, the sky, you know, it wasn't raining anymore. And the sun started to come down. It's the only time I've ever seen this in my whole life. First day at sea, as the sun is setting, we saw the green flash. So uh, a green light that kind of stretches across the horizon line. And it also looked like the earth was breathing. So right where the sun went down, a big, kind of looked like the shape of the sun, but larger rose back up in a greenish color and then settled back into the horizon 
So it was like the earth was taking a breath. It probably lasted maybe five seconds. It was pretty short. But it was really cool to see. Only time I've ever seen it. And then that night, um, we had clear skies. Um, Looking up, we saw lots of shooting stars. First time out at sea watching the shooting stars. And then, you know, I had to throw up again. I was pulling a bucket up, and the bucket was glowing. There were little uh, bioluminescent planktons in the in the bucket. And I looked over, and the dolphins, there were dolphins by the boat, and they looked magical because as they were swimming through the water, you could see the bioluminescence being aggravated and illuminating. And every time they jumped or breached uh, the surface, that bioluminescence would roll down their sides. They looked like magical dolphins. That was probably my favorite part of the day. The day. That was your first 24 hours. It was my underway. first uh, 24 hours <laughs> <laughs> sailing on a boat <laughs> in the ocean. Wow. And clear water was mostly rivers and tiny little jaunts out. Yeah. Wow. So, so not every day is like that. <laughs> no. Not <laughs> every day not. is like that. Surprisingly. So, um, now Bounty, uh, like you said, she's been to Europe, she's been back. They obviously, they had a lot of maintenance issues. You got to see some of that firsthand, right, working on her for the month. But, I mean, I remember you telling me you, you found a whole ecosystem in the bilge. Is that right? Like what? Because you were one of the divers. You could dive, if, if I remember. Yeah. They had you diving under her? Yeah, they had me diving on the hull pretty regularly. Anytime they caught a lobster pot or a crab pot in the prop, or sometimes they would have a hole in the hole. Now, keep in mind, um, my only tall ship experience prior to this, it's different now, but at the time, my only tall ship experience was on the clear water, and they didn't pump out that often. You know, they pumped out more than the Mirwald, I think it was about twice a day. When you say pump out, you're talking about the bilges. Pump the bilges, like, like, yeah. So wood, wooden boats, for, for those of you that don't know this, wooden boats tend, they always leak a little bit. That's perfectly normal, actually. Um, the water does help the planks swell and stay swollen. But, uh, you, yeah, you shouldn't be pumping out too often. Most boats pump out, what, once every few days if they're at dock. Yeah. You know, sometimes once a day underway. That's about it. What, what was, well, tell us about Bounty. So Bounty, um, if we were at dock, it was like, depending on the day, like three to three to five times a day. But if we were underway, I mean, you could be pumping out once an hour. Wow. Once an hour, once every two hours, if you were lucky. But usually around once an hour. We were pumping out a lot. Um, and so I'm down in the, uh, the bilge. They had really large bilges. I'm pretty short. Um, so I can get around in them pretty easily and I'm looking around in a headlamp for this leak that you could hear pretty well from the deck above and um, you could see it pouring in like a hose uh, which kind of shocked me that the water was pouring in so substantially but as I was looking around with the headlamp I saw something move in the water oh man like Star Wars <laughs> yeah, so I went, yeah so I went out and I, I grabbed the net and went back in and ended up coming out of there with a live crab a fish and an eel <laughs> that were living in the bilge oh my gosh oh. which is insane to think about because that means that there's like 
enough food coming in there for them to survive <laughs> through the holes. Um, so yeah, and then I then I patched that hole, um, sealed up. That was the biggest hole in the hull. Um, and then throughout our voyages um, north to Halifax, I patched several other holes, slowed down the leaks just a little bit. Then we got to uh, we got to Booth Bay, and then we recalked, I believe, the starboard side of the vessel. Uh, anything else you want to say about the bounty before we get into the hurricane and that final voyage? Well, actually, tell us about the crew. What were what were they like? I mean, you don't have to name them by name. Um, yeah, but uh, I mean, there were definitely some characters on board. I know that. Oh yeah. No, they're great. Uh, I love that crew, um, like a family. Um, the crew, we all got along really well. Uh, I remember when I was being interviewed by the first mate. The first mate did the hiring, at least for me. Um, and our interview lasted forever. We we probably talked about an hour and a half, maybe two hours on the phone. And I just... Uh, really enjoyed talking to him you know he was a surfer and a, a, a scuba instructor and he could do backflips and he break danced and i was like all right this guy's pretty cool we have a lot in common because <laughs> uh, <laughs> i like all those things i still can't do a backflip though but anyway um <laughs> yeah it was great um some of the crew were were salty and that was always fun because you they were very serious and and knew what they were doing and um, always told you if you were messing up and I liked that. Um, at least the way it was presented there, it was it was done pretty well. And um, they were fun. I mean, we went all sorts on all sorts of adventures. I mean, in Lunenburg, things got a little crazy, but I'll tell you some of what happened. Um, we were cliff jumping. You know, and in the ovens, uh, I don't know if you've ever been there, but there's these massive sea caves that are carved into the sides of the cliff faces there in Lunenburg, and just jumping off the, and into the caves and getting smacked by the big, the big waves as you're going in. It's amazing. Wow. Um, I believe we skinny dipped in every port up the east coast. <laughs> And I've never done that with another crew, so that's saying something. That's <laughs> true, yeah. You prudish old me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But no, they were they were good. We did have oh, we did have a fight club. You had a fight club? Yeah. Okay. In Puerto Rico. <laughs> um on the boat at first. So there are different people on the boat who did martial arts and they all had different styles. Some of them better than others. And uh, some of them just brawled, just threw punches. And yeah, every, every so often we would we would have matches in the uh, tween decks. It's a huge area on the bounty. It's all open. There were no uh, watertight bulkheads. You see from one side to the other. Whoa, we'll back up. There were the, no watertight bulkheads on a 180-foot long boat. On the tween decks. Oh, the, okay. Yeah, on the tween decks. Um, so in the middle. Um, so it's it's just huge, really big, really cool to see. There were watertight bulkheads in the lower decks, so okay. Um, but it made it even more grand and large. 
So we're in there um, just brawling, brawling like once or twice a week, and it, it, it got more and more and more intense as it went on, and everybody who was participating had brush burns on their knees and their elbows, for starters. And some people had bloody ears. Um, I know I had a bloody eye. So like the sclera, the white part of my eye was all, you know, there wasn't any white part in that, on that part of the eye. It was just all bloody and bloody noses. Uh, one guy had a broken nose. And so we're doing deck tours and the, the crew just keeps appearing to be more and more and more injured. <laughs> and this is going on for, you know, probably about two weeks and the captain finally notices all these strange injuries on the crew and like confronts confronts us about it because um he thought that two of the crew members were actually fighting um because it was so bad and they're like no 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 this is can't talk about it but we're practicing <laughs> and he was like okay well then I take half of what I said back. You guys are no longer allowed to fight on the boat. Because at first he said you're not allowed to fight anymore. Mm. So then we took it to the streets and we were (laughs) fighting in random places throughout Puerto Rico. And some of us continued this along the coast. (laughs) Nova Scotia. Wow, this is... Wow. Yeah, it was an interesting crew. Yeah, it's great. And didn't you get, you almost died from, didn't you get staph infection, like MRSA? Yeah, that was, yep. That was Bounty, right? That was Bounty. Wow. Um, so, all of this is making me sound like an idiot, but. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're just beginning here. <laughs> no. Um, but no, it's incredible. I mean, it's it's just, it's a great adventure, Josh. You live adventure. So, with it comes <laughs> with living life comes injury and MRSA, I guess. I got MRSA too. I got that on Tolly Moore. Uh-huh. Yeah, it wasn't Tolly's fault. It's just, it, actually, no, I, that's not true. I didn't get it on Tolly Moore. I take that back. My mistake. I got on uh, this Liberty Clipper. Mm. One of the guys had a boil, and I didn't know what it was. And he's working with his freaking shirt off. And I, I, next thing I like, like I must have touched something he touched or whatever because I went to to Europe after that after that contract was up, and I had this sore on my finger, and I was like, "Ow, that really hurts." It's like it's this big boil, um, and then had it looked at. I can't remember exactly the order of things, but then I, I got a few others. Yeah, and you know one of them I got Lance, and I still got a scar from that, I'm sure. Um, and they confirmed it was MRSA, and then it, it just wasn't going away. It was, and I didn't want to give it to anybody else. That was the problem. Yeah, you know. And so finally, what I what I did, I had a doctor who he had it. He had had a lot of patients with it. And he said this this regime, this has never failed. The it was a series of I forget what, but there was cream that you had to put on soap and then sit there for ten minutes, and it caused all your more sensitive body parts to open up. It was very very painful and uncomfortable yeah. to say the least. Uh, there's a couple of the antibiotics or something I got as well. Um, but in the end, and then I bleached literally everything I had and threw out half of my clothes because they got ruined by bleach. And I bleached every surface where I lived on the boat and uh, just like extreme bleaching um, just to make sure that I killed this thing. And uh hasn't come back since, thank God. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, I really was worried the rest of the crew would get infected the way I had from this other boat. But luckily on Tolly Moore... Um, I, I dealt with it and nobody else got infected that I know of. 
So yeah. But anyway, that was my story. Still pretty miserable. Cost me a couple grand. Right. In clothes and whatnot. Tell us your story because you had it even worse. <laughs> it was pretty interesting. So same transit. <laughs> <laughs> Puerto Rico to uh, to Saint Augustine, Florida. That twelve to I think it was a fourteen day transit. Um, first four days seasick the entire time. Still enjoyable, as I already Wait, told you. Four days. Yeah, I was seasick for four days straight. Holy crap! That's, Sucked. Yeah, it's dangerous. It wasn't very fun, uh, except for the first day. That was great. Um, <laughs> then I had, I think, about three days without being seasick or feeling sick in any way. That was lovely. And then <laughs> about seven days away from land, I started to develop these boils. Started out with uh, two of them in my armpit, and then they started to spread. Um, developed a, a light fever uh, at first, and I pointed them out to the captain, and he was like, those those are just ingrown hairs. I was like, uh, I don't think so. I don't really get ingrown hairs, and if I did, I wouldn't have 18 of them in different parts of my body. Yeah. But... Um, he was persistent that it was ingrown hairs. I thought it was uh, at least a staph infection. Um, and so I found uh, antibiotics on the boat, but they were expired. But I thought I'd try them anyway. So I was taking these expired antibiotics. I was using heat compresses to try to draw the infection to the surface. I was doing all these different things because I was pretty sure I had staph infection possibly MRSA and I was wrapping up the boils too so that I wouldn't make everybody else sick but um, I had to keep working um, about four days away from land uh, my fever sparked, or spiked to about 105 and it stayed at about 105 for four days and uh, the ones on my left leg got really bad so the one on my my left knee covered up my whole patella. This was about three inches wide, the boil. And it was just absolutely massive and full. The one on my shin was about an inch tall and an inch wide. So very tall, very painful. And it got to the point where I couldn't use that leg anymore for the last four days. And But I was still working. So I would crutch. I found these old wooden crutches. So I would crutch around to work, and I'd crutch over to the shrouds and then climb up the shrouds with just my right leg and my arms, but dragging my left leg, Um, (laughs) which was horrible, but that's what I was doing. I was using my left. I wish we had video of this right now. Like, my my mouth is open. I've heard this story before, and I still am just in shock. Yeah, so I was still trying to work, Um, feeling pretty bad talked to a bunch of people on the crew about it uh most of them also thought it was MRSA but couldn't budge with the captain he's still convinced they were ingrown hairs um so about two days away from land I really couldn't function much anymore um I could still crutch around a little bit but I was bedridden and uh was just having massive fever and um Oh, I forgot. Right before that, this is really cool. Are you? Is any? If you're eating, um, keep eating because you might throw up a little bit. 
So <laughs> I was using a heat pad on the one on my shin. And as I was doing that, this white thing started to come to the surface. And so I picked at it a little bit and I pulled out this piece of hardened pus that was about an inch long and about a half an inch wide. And then it was just like a volcano. It just kept pouring or oozing. It was more like oozing uh, dark blood, like a, a venous blood. So it started oozing out and just would not stop. And it was just bleeding. It was bleeding um, until I went to the hospital eventually. Um, it just never stopped bleeding. Um, so that was interesting. Uh, pretty gross as well. I bleached that shower a lot after that. But there were two uh, crew members watching as I did this. I guess they were pretty sick, but uh, they thought it was kind of cool. Anyway, back to the story. Um, <laughs> two days away from land. Can't really move anymore. Um, just rolling around in the, in the bed, and the uh, the boils would pop, and it would get liquid everywhere, and I'd rewrap them. And then um, as we came into port, um, the captain told me to hide or put myself under a sheet um, as we were coming into port. And then I realized that was for Coast Guard inspection. And so the Coast Guard never saw me down there. Um, with all these boils and galls everywhere because I was under a sheet and with my curtain closed just hiding down there for the Coast Guard COI inspection so that was fun and then um, finally got the port um, I crutched out and got a taxi went to the hospital by myself and then um, the doctor said it was the worst case of mercy I'd ever seen and he said he was surprised I was still alive with having a fever that bad for so long. And he also wasn't sure if they were going to be able to save my leg. So they were contemplating whether or not they were going to have to amputate because the infection... Uh, now, I had two knee surgeries prior to this, so the infection had spread into the bone and was also in my um, blood system, my circulatory system. So... Um, it wasn't too great so they gave me a shot right away um, an antibiotic shot uh, told me to use the cream every day for two months um, first he wanted me to do it twice a day and shower um, for a full month um, take three different antibiotic pills orally and do antibiotic nasal swabs all that uh, the pills and the nasal swabs for a month um, so I go back but, but of course they have to test it, right? He didn't have to lance anything because that thing on my uh, shin was still bleeding. They just took a sample oh, from that. Oh, great. Yeah. That's, yeah. Hey. <laughs> way, to, <laughs> way to be positive, Josh. <laughs> so, went back to the boat, um, told the captain everything, and he was like, well, did they... Uh, did I mean, he had to send a test out. If they had to send a test out, then it probably wasn't MRSA because he would have known if it was MRSA. And I said, well, he said it was MRSA. He said it was the worst case he ever saw. He's like, yeah, but if they had to test it, it wasn't MRSA. You're fine. So I was working for another three days on the boat. The next day, of course, I had to go back to the hospital, get more shots um, after work, and then went back, continued working, worked for three more days until the test came back. Um, as I went back to the boat to tell the captain 
that it came back positive. He's like, well, that's highly contagious. You need to leave. <laughs> I was like, yeah, <laughs> I know. <laughs> and so he wouldn't let me back on the boat. And I just had to leave. Um, I think one of the crew members grabbed like a small bag, but I didn't have like any of the stuff that I brought to the boat. Yeah. So I, I just had to get on the plane and, uh, which is kind of crazy to go on a plane via MRSA. Yeah. That's not good. No. And, uh, go back to Pennsylvania. Uh, in the meantime, the crew threw, or they threw all of my soft things overboard. So all my clothes and towels and sheets and bedding, anything like that, they threw it overboard. And, uh, then I was in, uh, yeah, I was in Pennsylvania for a month to recover. Um, but it did start a new cleaning regiment on the boat, which was interesting. Um, they had to do... Well, the entire crew had to get tested for MRSA. Some of them had it. The one guy um, had had a bunch of things that looked like boils before I ever got it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure if he came back positive. I don't remember who all was positive, but could have got it from him but i could have also gotten it from snorkeling every day in puerto rico but i could or from the vinyl mattress that i was laying on i didn't have a sheet so i was like peeling off every morning because it's hot in puerto rico yeah Uh, and so somebody could have slept on that before that had it there's a lot of ways you could have gotten it yeah but um needless to say some of the other crew had it some of them just had normal staff and they had to start this huge cleaning regiment so every day they would bleach. There's three watches. One watch would have to bleach the lower deck. One would bleach the tween decks. And one would bleach the rigging. And that went on all the way through the hurricane. Like for the next uh, eight months. Wow. After I came back. Wow. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I went back um, against probably the better judgment of everyone. <laughs> Uh, my mom was, oh, really interesting thing about my mom and a couple of my other relatives. When I got to port um, in St. Augustine, after having been under that sheet, I got a, a bunch of phone calls, voice messages. They don't have reception out at sea. So I got a bunch of voice messages all of a sudden, and some of them were from my grandmother, my mom, and my uncle. And apparently they had all been having the same dream that I was under a sheet and they didn't know if I was dead or I was really sick, but a white like covering, which I thought was insane. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so that was pretty crazy. Wow. Um, so yeah, then I had to call them and tell them what happened because it was just so weird. And then I went, uh, so I went home and then when I wanted to go back to the boat, I said that I wanted to go back because I had started this journey, you know, I said I was going to sail the East Coast, and I didn't want to go back on it. And I also really liked the crew. I got along really well with the crew. Um, and it was an adventure, and I wanted to get back to that as well. But I, I really just didn't want to let anybody down because I told them I was going to do this, and I wanted to finish it. Um, but the interesting thing was my mom had been having these dreams prior to me going back to the bounty that um, the crew was out at sea at night 
and everybody was in the water next to the boat and we were all trying to get away from the boat um and there was nobody nobody else was there just the crew trying to get away from the boat at night in the ocean and she said that there was water everywhere in the dream and i was like well that's crazy like why would we be trying to swim away from the boat? If there was a big storm or something, we'd want to be on the boat. We wouldn't want to be trying to get away from the boat. Um, but that is actually what happened. This was a reoccurring dream that she was having, that she was having over and over and over again. And I definitely should have listened to my mom because <laughs> good advice, right? Listen to your mom. Yeah. Um, she said this was the only thing that she would ever tell me don't do this and I did it anyway like an idiot <laughs> hey I mean, you couldn't have known obviously nobody yeah. could have truly known well you know you just uh, you just think it's uh, your mom being worried because I was just really sick yeah right so well and I mean yeah obviously there are obviously safety issues um, anybody can read I believe the tribunals are public knowledge so you can you can go through your own, on your own time folks on the numerous, numerous safety issues, um, and I'm sure we'll talk about it with, with other crew members at some point in their interviews. But, um, all right, before we get into Bounty, I know I know, folks are probably dying for the story, but I, I just, oh, the creepiest thing ever. T talk about the cockroaches, please. Oh, yeah. <laughs> sorry, like, so sorry, folks, but uh, if you're creeped out by cockroaches, you may want to fast forward a few minutes here. <laughs> so I actually... I hate it, but also was very intrigued by the cockroaches. So as a biologist, I thought it was very interesting because there were three different species of cockroaches on the boat. There was a species from Europe, a species from Puerto Rico, and the ones that you're used to in the U.S. as big cockroaches from the U.S. And the ones from Puerto Rico flew a lot. Like, they would fly all the time, and they were like a greenish color. They were smaller and more slender. And then there, there were European ones which are also a little smaller than, than the ones we're used to. I only found the American ones, the, the ones from the U.S., in, under the trash can one day. Other than that, the Puerto Rican ones and the European ones had just taken over and outcompeted all of the ones that we see here in the U.S. So I thought that was interesting. Uh -huh. But then I started to see a hybrid one forming. So the Puerto Rican ones and the European ones are mating. And there was like this mixed breed which I thought was really cool. But anyway, I, I saw a couple albino ones. This one day I was looking, I was going to make my food. We had a microwave on board, which is a luxury a lot of tall ships don't have. And uh, it was kind of interesting. So you'd open up the microwave. This was how you did it. You open up the microwave, you put your food inside. There's roaches when you open it up, always. Well, when you'd open it, they'd scurry into like the little holes and things, and they'd scurry out. You put your food back in, close the microwave, turn it on. And then as the food was turning and the light was on and it was cooking, the, the roaches would come back out and run all over your food because they weren't affected by the microwaves. It was insane. So you could watch this happening. I thought that was pretty cool too. <laughs> and <laughs> then one day I was doing this and there was a microwave. You know where it says like hello and it gives you like the time? Like there's yeah. a little clock? Yeah. There was a roach in there like behind the glass and it was all white like an albino roach or maybe it was radioactive i don't know it was weird that's pretty many cool roaches were i mean thousands, thousands like thousands yeah like you'd sleep like 
you'd fall asleep and you'd wake up and there'd be a roach like running across your face like that happened a lot and that was not the best um but this one time we had this big uh <laughs> we had this big event i don't remember what the event was for but they left us with a four foot long whale cake like a cake shaped like a whale thinking that we would eat it but it was massive and it was a huge event but they ate almost none of the cake so we had nowhere to put the cake um it wasn't going to fit in the fridge right and so we they just left it on the table and all night and so the next morning you wake up and turn the lights on and there's roaches everywhere probably thousands of roaches on this cake in the cake all over the cake and i had a plan i was like well let's just leave it there let's keep the cake there and all the roaches on the boat go in the cake and then we'll destroy the cake but that 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 wasn't a very popular plan we threw it in the water <laughs> i don't think that would have worked either like like gathering up the roaches in a bag or something yeah it was pretty funny oh dear god how but thousands of roaches we tried bombing them multiple times it didn't work at first they were afraid of lights uh-huh. but eventually they just didn't care you'd turn the lights on and they'd stay there oh my gosh and then yeah they were becoming like immune to the bombs the roach bombs did you ever they didn't care the about the lights bomb? what anymore. happened i mean you didn't bring them all to america i hope i mean like oh yeah i'm sure oh dear god get rid of the roach problem i mean eventually i mean i've never seen a roach sank. on a tall ship literally i've never in my entire tall ship career seen a single solitary roach we had one mouse on one of the boats one time <laughs> that, and it was an elusive mouse and it did eventually go away one way or the other but um it, not by our our great effort but uh i think it just probably scurried off the boat at some point but yeah i've never seen a roach on a tall ship like well, most boats are so careful with food and with cleaning every day. I mean, every day on a boat, you clean everything every day. Yeah. That's just how it is. Because uh, it's like a hundreds year old habit. <laughs> but. Oh, yeah. There, there were a lot of roaches. And actually, um, that was kind of funny because some things would eat the roaches. Like sometimes we'd get birds on the boat and they would stay for a while. And like I remember this one transit in particular... I don't know why. I guess it was because of a storm, but this, the birds got blown off, of course, and there were all kinds of birds on the boat. There were ospreys and all sorts of songbirds, and there was even an egret sitting up there. And the one that I thought was interesting was an oriole, uh, which you would never think to see out at sea. It was it got blown off by the by the storm, but the oriole ended up in the boat. And it was just going around eating roaches. And we had them probably for a couple days until we got to land and then we let it go. (laughs) Just surviving off all the roaches we had in there. Just flying around in the boat. We didn't want to let them go because then he'd die. So he wouldn't be able to get back to land. Potentially. He could live there the rest of his life, I'm sure. Probably Um, could. All right, well, let's, let's get into it. Let's talk about what led up to the... From your side of the things, or your view of things, uh, what led up to the final final voyage? Yeah, so um, so my view of things was a little different during the incident than it is, you know, currently. You know, having grown a little bit 
in um, the sailing career and learning more about boats and learning more about different protocols and things like that, um, I can see certain things a little differently than I did at the time because I didn't have very much sailing experience when I was on the boat. Um, now as a crew, we work together really well. The crew is very trained. Um, we had a lot of um, people with captain's license, lots of ABs, um, and we did a lot of training, actually. We did a whole bunch of um, man overboard drills, you know, your fire drills, and abandoned ship drills. But the abandoned ship drills were always very interesting. As the captain always said, there's two ways you're going to sink. The one is we're going to sink like in less than three minutes, and the other one, we're going to sink in like three days. And, uh, but he also always said that because it's a wooden boat, the wooden boat's never really going to sink in three minutes. We're just kind of, we're going to be tossing around. We're going to be floating there for a long time. And so it's always going to be better to stay on the boat during an abandoned ship. Um, so we were in Booth Bay, you know, for about a month doing maintenance and, after the fact, you know, looking back, I can see certain things that um, could have been done a little differently. While we were in uh, Booth Bay, we did a lot of things. We moved the tanks, for instance. We moved the entire tank room into the old crew living quarters and then moved the old crew living quarters to where the tank room was. So we shifted a lot of weight. Um, this was Coast Guard approved? I don't know. I, they didn't actually so there's an interesting thing about that so when the Coast Guard came to visit the boat for the inspection um, Robin had the crew running impact drivers in the lower decks which is where the tank room was uh, so running impact drivers and putting uh, driving lag bolts into the bulkhead and then pulling them out and then back in and back out over and over again it was very loud yeah. Um, we weren't actually working, we were just making noise. Um, and in that way, the Coast Guard didn't spend very much time on the lower decks because it was so loud. They didn't have any ear protection, and they didn't want to be down there because it was deafening. So it was interesting. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll see. Um, so we shifted a lot of weight. Um, can't really comment. I don't know if that was approved or not but it was something that we did um, and, and it probably was approved but it's just some of the work that we did in yard and so we shifted the water tanks forward we shifted the uh, the fuel tanks forward and that took a long time um, that was something that I, I participated in a lot and a lot of the other crew was responsible for caulking the starboard side of the vessel um we didn't have any professional caulkers, but a lot of the crew knew how to caulk pretty well, or some of the crew did, and they were leading that endeavor. Um, but at the end, um, Robin ended up using DAP, uh, I believe, so a, uh, a home um, caulking agent, something that you would use in a caulking gun, like for instance in a bathroom or something to fill in all the seams. 
but not something that you would use on a wooden boat to fill the seams. And the um, shipwright, the uh, yard owner, or not the yard owner, but the shipwright that was working with us at the yard um, actually commented on that and said that, you know, that's not a marine grade sealant that's not going to hold. Um, but that's what we used because we wanted to get in the water the next day and it was cheap. Um, so that was put in. There was a lot of rot. Um, a lot of rot. <laughs> um, which might have been a, one of the reasons for using the impact drivers so that the Coast Guard wasn't looking at all that rot. But there was a lot of it on the stringers, on the, um, on the top of the keelson. Um, especially down in the bilge area the, and below the waterline. Um, when we moved those um, tanks, they didn't actually fit in the room, so we had to cut parts of the framing out in order to get the tanks to fit and then cover the framing with Vaseline and attach come-alongs to the tanks and yank the tanks like into the, into the space. Um, where you'd have a very hard time removing them again. But the point is, we had to actually cut away at some of the framing in order to get the tanks to fit. This is structural framing. These yeah. Are, these are like actually supporting deck beams and... Uh, right, yeah, real, parts like, of the Hall planks and stuff, okay. Yeah. So structural. Not hall planks, but the, the framing that stuck out. Like yeah. The ribbing and, and, and the framing and the overhead and things like that going thwart ships um, so we were removing things in order to get these things to fit um, which I know nobody ever looked at there were, and you know a lot of things weren't tested you know we didn't test the hydraulic pumps to see if they were working before we were underway I don't know when the hydraulic pumps were tested uh, uh, we also, you know, nobody tested the the trash pump um, before getting underway. The trash pump is, uh, I guess it's, why is it, what do they call it that? Because it looks like a trash can or something? I'm it's sure. got a large hose that's supposed to be capable of sucking in a lot of debris. Yeah. So you can, you can use it to take water, to dewater a boat, to keep it from, you know, pump water out of a boat. And you don't have to worry about um, pulling in a lot of debris and having it get clogged um, but it wasn't tested it hadn't been tested in a really long time yeah so it's a portable several pump years. It's, uh, just, yeah. just so audience members understand it's a portable pump that you can pull out and basically take anywhere on the ship it usually runs off gasoline, some run off diesel it doesn't matter but yeah big intake as you said it can suck in debris and I guess trash maybe that's where it comes from I'm not sure Yeah. Um, and then you just run that the other hose overboard and uh, very effective if if it works. It's pretty darn effective. All right. So we had our main bilge manifold, um, which we could pump with the uh, the generator. I'm not sure if they had a PTO, but we had the main bi the bilge manifold, which I said earlier we were using about every hour, regular transits during the storm nonstop, just on all the time in the engine room. Uh, we also had. Um, the hydraulic pumps, but they weren't tested, and we had the trash pump. So those were our backups, but again, uh, not tested. 
and and you are just coming out of a yard period. So there there is debris everywhere, right? Yeah. I mean, there's there's no yeah. way around that. Yeah, there was a lot of sawdust and things in the bilge and things yeah. like that, which comes up later. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> did you see a submarine like before you left, or visited, yeah, did a tour of a submarine yep. or something? Yeah. So uh, sorry, but, if we we're getting to that. Oh no, we're good. Shoot you ahead of the story. Um. So before we left, uh, so we 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 left um Booth Bay. Um, and we sail against the uh, advice of the shipwright, um, which is important to note. He said that we were not in uh, good shape to sail, and if we're going to sail, we needed to avoid any weather. But we left Booth Bay, Booth Bay and um, sailed into New London, Connecticut, and we did a, uh, a day sail with the, the crew of the U.S. Mississippi the uh, submarine. Um, so one of the new, at that time, one of the newest Navy ships in the fleet. And I actually got to take them aloft, which was fun. Um, two of them went to the Royal. Oh, wow. Out of Great. 50. And then um, they gave us a tour of the submarine, which is really cool. Um, this is a nuclear, nuclear submarine? A nuclear submarine. Tech, really amazing. Tech submarine, I'm assuming. I believe so, yeah. but really amazing technology, and it was a lot of fun. But basically, at the end of the tour, the um, some of the Navy guys were saying that they had heard that we were going to leave port, and they were surprised, and they were saying, you guys are actually going to head out. There's a huge storm out there. I didn't actually know about that at the time. I just was very trustful. I trusted what people said, didn't really question things. Um, and so I wasn't even, you know, monitoring the weather personally, but I didn't realize that until they said that, um, that there was a big storm out there. I was like, well, I'm sure there's a really big storm. We won't go out in it. And so we get back to the port and as we're getting there, um, some of us are getting, um, phone calls and texts from family and my mom texted and said that there's a big storm out there and stuff like that after we did this uh, tour with the Navy. And we get back to the boat, and we have a muster. And the captain says, um, I know a lot of you guys have been, you know, getting calls from your family and friends and people out there saying that there's Frankenstorm, there's a huge superstorm out there. And he said that's not as bad as, as people are making out. It's not this giant hurricane that people are saying and he talked a lot about how how um he had sailed through big storms in the past and everything came out all right and a lot of the crew had sailed with him through those storms so i had a lot of confidence in that we'd be all right um and then he mentioned how he used to go out and rescue people who were on oil rigs trapped by hurricanes so he had a lot of experience sailing in hurricanes and sailing in hurricane-like conditions, but he'd also said that it wasn't a hurricane and it wasn't as bad, and uh, he told us that, you know, if you want to leave, leave now, and no one will hold it against you, but if not, we're getting underway, and then uh, well, he said that, I forgot, he also said, um, you know, we had been working, some of us for years and some of us for nine months together, 
lead up to this point this is you know what we train for we train to be able to sail in these conditions this is why we have drills and things like that and then he said you know if you want to leave leave now and so nobody left um i felt a lot of pressure maybe subconsciously maybe not not to leave you know it almost felt like that speech you give before a battle and you draw that line and say if you you know if you want to back out then back out and then nobody ever backs out right everybody steps across the line to go into the battle and that's kind of how it felt you know you're if you backed out you'd be letting down your crew and you know part of your family so you don't want to do that yep and then we uh we sailed off the dock didn't i don't not literally we didn't set sail and go <laughs> off the dock uh but we left the dock um <laughs> yeah pretty gutsy <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh very quickly actually um right after muster we um we let took dock lines and and we we motored away um you can sail off the dock folks by the way i've done it several times and yeah but pretty much the wind has to be essentially just right and the boat's gonna go anyway no matter yeah. what you do <laughs> it just looks great it's pretty cool but and something interesting i didn't mention earlier is um we always had the generators going mm. all the time um for every sail we had we had two generators and two engines and twin screw um it's a lot of power we always had one of the generators going and the captain always said you know he wants one going at all times in case it won't turn back on okay so you turn the other one on and then once that was going turn the other one off we always had at least one going just to make sure we always had power mm-hmm. so that was Something that I realized later was like, huh, that's an interesting thing that we don't do on other boats. But yeah, so we, we're uh, motoring out there, and um, I was actually having a lot of fun. You know, everybody's exciting. We're building, building each other up and um, getting excited. We don't think we're sailing into a hurricane, um, because the plan was to sail uh, southeast and go around the hurricane, obviously not sail into a hurricane. Nobody would want to do that. And so we thought we were going to sail around the hurricane, um, like out towards the middle of the Atlantic and then down the coast. Um, and so first day I got, you know, we're setting up Jacqueline, setting up sea strainers, which are like nets to catch uh catch people when the boat rocks so that they don't fall overboard and uh, jacklins are, are lines that go up and down the, the boat you can clip into them or you can hold on to them I wasn't the biggest fan of how the jacklins are rigged because they were lo- they were very loose mm-hmm. and so if you grabbed onto it you could actually go all the way over to the cap rail with it um, but the ones below decks and the tween decks I liked a lot better they were nice and tight so you could um, use them. I never used the ones on deck though because of that how loose they were. I didn't like that. Um, even not know that was the first boat we ever used them on. I just didn't like that. Yeah. Um, and then we went 
or I got to go aloft actually with uh, Drew, Drew, one of my friends on the boat, and it's my really my first time doing a big project alone um, with his supervision. So he was on the Tagalant yard and he was looking up, making sure I did everything right, and I got to disconnect everything and bring the royal yard down and kind of ride it down as it came down and push it off of things as it was coming down. And that was a lot of fun. So we took Royals down in yep. preparation for the storm. We got to do both of those. And then... Um, and that's smart. I mean, that's been done for hundreds of years. Yep. Yeah. That's a good idea. You can even downrate to gallon mass and to gallons all the way too. Uh, you guys didn't do that, right? No. Okay. No. Actually, it... <laughs> In a storm previous to the one that we were in, I wasn't on the boat at this time, but they they had broken one of their masts. Which part? Um, just just so folks know, the, the masts on traditionally rigged boats, you, you got like your main mast is, is like maybe the bottom part of the mast, and then you have a main top mast, which is another mast that goes above that. Then you have a Tegallant mast, and then in the bounty, you actually had a royal mast, or was the royal just, it was above the Tegallant? It was above the Tegallant. Yeah, so so the masts are in three sections, and it's really smart. I mean, when you only have human power to deal with and work with, you you, 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 you know, modern times, yeah, sure, you can build one big steel mast or, or carbon fiber mast, and it'll it'll last, but but good luck trying to get a sail in that, you know, at some point you're limited by just human strength. Um, so it actually is really smart to have things that are compartmentalized and things that can be pulled down in a storm. It lowers your center of gravity. It can be all done by human power. Um, if if you had the same constraints that folks had to have hundreds of years ago, well, you probably wouldn't come up with something too much better, honestly. I mean, maybe maybe a couple innovations, but at its core, it's a pretty smart way to do it. So, all right, so you guys are taking down the Royals. That's pretty good. Yeah, but in a previous year, they had actually broken um, part of their mizzen mast, one of the upper mm-hmm. masts, and they, or sorry, they broke uh, part of their their foremast. Okay. And they took uh, the mizzen mast and put it on top of the fore to replace it. So if you look at pictures of the bounty prior to Sandy, yeah, you'll see that the mizzen's very short. And the four is a little shorter than it should be. <laughs> Jeez. Because it had the mizzen on the four. Okay. <laughs> so okay. That was interesting. <laughs> interesting, yes. Um, so anyway, we brought down the Royals. That was a lot of fun. Um, and that day wasn't that bad. Uh, pretty calm weather. It was so calm that during the muster... Um, Robin, Captain Robin was uh, telling the crew, you know, like 200 years ago, um, how would you have known that there was a storm out there? And I said, well, you wouldn't, right? You wouldn't know that there was a big storm out there. And then he he said, you know, you can look at the clouds and the sky and, and feel the wind and the water and things like that. But no, you wouldn't know for sure that there was a storm out there. You could guess at things, but you wouldn't know anything for certain and then he said but thanks to like our technology and things we can track the storm see where it is and see where we need to go which is a kind of an ironic thing to say but Mm -hmm. um but it was a good point you know we have uh, all this technology and this uh, way of tracking the storms and knowing where they are you know it's not 
infallible. You know, the storms will still change. Have all you can have all the weather predictions in the world, and the storm will still do whatever it wants. But um, it helps. And uh, so that day was, you know, pretty uneventful. We were just basically storm prepping the whole day. And uh, the next day, the next few days, the the weather starts to pick up a bit. We had really good meals the first day. That was the actually the cook's first day sailing on a tall ship. <laughs> the day that we were doing all the storm prep, mm. any tall ship. Um, so that was probably fun for her, and she made really great meals the first day. And then as this progresses, <laughs> um, there's less and less food because it's impossible to cook. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the second day, you know, the weather starts to increase, uh, the swells increasing, the the wind increasing. And it gets to to be, I mean, we're sailing, like we're moving. We've got a lot of wind going. It's harder to hear people on deck. We have the uh, the four course and the four topmost staysail set um, in order to bring the bow out of the water, bring it out of the, the waves a little bit was the the uh, theory behind that. And, um, and we're moving. And... I believe it was the third day. Um, it really starts to blow, um, and blow pretty hard, and um, we have to bring in sail. So we bring in the four topmast staysail. We bring in the court. Oh no, we we only brought in the four topmast staysail. We left the course set, and um, can't really sleep I, I, after the second day. I couldn't really sleep anymore. Um, if you tried to sleep, you just roll out of your, you know, you just roll out of your rack. You had lee cloths, but it was really hard to stay in them as the ship rolled uh, from side to side as the swells increased. And um, during the second day, we also started to list to starboard. This was a big thing. So we started to list to starboard, and we were noting that um, water seemed to be coming down the ceiling planking. Um, a lot of water and uh, most of the crew was under the opinion that the seams were blowing out and we had water coming in the seams um, but uh, Captain Walbridge was saying that it was just water coming up from the bilge running up the ceiling planking and then washing back down um, it was probably both um, we did have a lot of water coming in the seams and that becomes uh, irrefutable later uh, but lots of water uh, lots of rocking and now we're listing the starboard a good a good deal more than we should be um, because all the water is kind of pulling over on the starboard side we were taking on that water through the seams had you changed course or what happened are you headed to the hurricane at this point or had the hurricane moved to you guys um, for the crew um, the plan was always the same. We were we were supposed to be going around the hurricane. Okay. Um, I didn't know when we changed course until we were going like straight into the middle of the hurricane. Okay. Yeah, I hadn't been on the helm when that happened. Um, so I did not know that we changed course and went ever like a, during the whole until you were in the hurricane. Until we were going, yeah, like right into the middle of it. Yeah. Okay. Me personally, I don't know about 
um, everybody else. But yeah. Um. But yeah. So. <laughs> so you have water coming in the seams, and it's blowing pretty good. Um, but we're still sailing that day, and then like I said, third day, taking the uh, and and timeline is difficult. <laughs> so we're just gonna say third day. Um, but we take in the, the four top mistakes while we're still sailing with the course. And then all of a sudden the course tears. Uh, uh, tears a little bit to port, but close to the uh, midships. And so we, we lay aloft. We start bringing in the sail, trying to furl the sail. And it's blowing uh, probably about a gale, so probably about uh, 40 knots. And we're punching the sail, trying to get it in. Actually, at first we were just folding it. Um, and the first mate was up there, and he, he wasn't up often aloft actually I don't know if he was up aloft the whole time I was on the boat because he ran things from the deck and was always making sure everyone was safe Uh, but he was up aloft this time uh, which is how I knew it was a pretty unusual thing and so we're well obviously the sail being torn is unusual (laughs) so we're we're trying to furl the sail and he knew that I was really into martial arts he was like just punch it and so I just started wailing on it uh-huh. And we get the sail furled and uh, all, all tied up. And we lay back uh, back down. And then soon later, um, we find out that one of the, um, the sight tubes on the port side of the vessel had broken. And a lot of the diesel started to pour out um, because we're listing the starboard. So we're losing... Um, almost all the fuel on the port side and so our port engine and our port generator are no longer really functioning so we're really only relying on the starboard engine and the starboard generator and that's the side that's taking on water okay so no more fuel and the fuel tanks you know weren't interchangeable like ours you can switch Mm -hmm. and so no more fuel for the port side engine no more fuel for the port side generator we only got starboard and we're listening to that side water starting to come up that side a little bit and um and the captain was like all right you guys you can skip the maintenance period today and try to get some rest and so we go below immediately so first i try to sleep on the inboard bunk ship rolls up i roll right out of the cloth onto the deck and just into the other side of the boat it's like well that's not gonna work so then i try to sleep on the outboard uh, bunk and <laughs> as the ship rolls I roll up on the ceiling planking and all that water just goes and it's like a little waterfall and I'm absolutely drenched I'm like well great I just got out of the rain and dry because it was pouring rain this whole time I don't know if I mentioned that no. but at starting day two it's pouring rain um, so it's finally dry for once and now I'm soaked with this nasty bilge and whatever water um <laughs> so I go back up on deck and as I'm coming back up um the four course uh, blows out. Um on, on again the same sail that tore but the port side of the sail blew out of its furl and so it's billowing uh, really big and it's really pushing the boat to starboard really making us list over so to go up try to furl it again and um me and three other crew members go aloft the third mate's on deck watching us making sure we're safe and this time the wind's probably up to about 60 knots 
and uh, because the third mate was always checking the wind, uh, which is why I know <laughs> I had an anemometer. It was pretty useful for this. But anyway. Um, yeah, that's 60 on deck. Yeah. So you were feeling more than that up aloft. Possibly. It was a lot of wind. Yeah. So we're going, we're going up, and uh, it was so windy that um, you could actually take your hands off and take your feet off and stick to the shrouds. Keep in mind, we're also listed over. Right. And so we're climbing aloft, and we get to the course, and it's hailing, and you can't look at the sail because that's where the wind and the hail, I mean, it's like coming into your eyes. So we're trying to do this for the most part with our eyes closed and just looking to the side, trying to furl the sail, and there's four of us up, four of us up there. It's only about a quarter of the sail, we cannot get it in. We're yanking on it as hard as we can, trying for a really long time. We brought extra lines up there to try to to try to rope it in. We just can't do it. And then eventually, we let it go. And as soon as we let it go, it's shredded up like toilet paper. This thick, thick, like, oceanus sail just shreds up like toilet paper. And then we look below, and the third mate is, like, running towards the back of the boat. And we look aft at the back of the boat and we saw that the spanker gaff had broken into three pieces so the big stick on the top broken into three pieces and the sail is attached to it and just these three sections are just whipping back and forth so really quickly got back on deck and as we work our way aft we see um, Mark was on the helm dodging these blocks these big wooden blocks that are flying by his head and he's having to dodge them as he's trying to stay on the helm. Is this the captain? No, no, no. Um, Mark was an AB, I believe. At least oh, okay. a deckhand. But a very experienced deckhand. One of my best friends. Oh, sorry, Captain's Robin. Sorry. Yeah. Really good guy. One of the nicest guys you'd ever meet. Yeah. Who's at the wedding? Oh, okay. <laughs> yes, yes. Oh, my gosh. Wow. I can visualize it. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so he's dodging these blocks while he's... On the helm, pretty impressive feet, and I jump onto a vang to try to pull that section of the of the gaff down, and it lifts me up in the air, and I caught um, the lip of the the steering gear box uh, with with my toes, and I'm holding on with my toes, and then I just get ripped off, and then Adam grabs on behind me, and he gets picked up in the air, and so both of us are hanging onto this bang off the deck and then like four other people come over and pull us down and we pull the, that section of sail down and tie it to the deck and then <laughs> and then Dan uh, Cleveland which is one of the saltiest sailors I've ever met pretty knowledgeable well, really a uh, very knowledgeable guy he goes aloft on the um, starboard side where we're listening towards um and basically lassos the other section of the sail, like launches this line around somehow with all this wind everywhere. I don't know how you could direct the line. And he launches this line around it, manages to get the other side of it, and pull the sail over and lash it to the shrouds. It's really cool. I had all this on film, by the way. Like all these days were on my GoPro. Oh my gosh. Um, but. I lost that later. <laughs> wow. 
somewhere, maybe in Russia, there's a a waterproof bag with all that footage. <laughs> yeah. Someday, who knows? But so then that was the last time we were on deck. Um, after that, it's too dangerous to be on deck. So we lashed the helm. We lashed the wheel stationary midships and we're just running um with no steerage uh with just the uh the starboard uh, engine going just running and i yep still uh no uh, abandoned ship or anything like that or coast guard uh, no coast guard the coast guard had not been contacted no radio calls i don't think so not at that point um and so then um we get we go below and it starts to get dark so that was around sunset when all that was happening and um go below and we're taking on a good amount of water now now it's very obvious it's coming in through the seams seams are blown out on the starboard side the dap didn't work Mm -hmm. blew right out um We've got lots of water pouring in, and the uh, the bilge pumps are not keeping up with it, and so we switched to the hydraulic pumps, um, but they were bolted down stationary. We couldn't move them around, and they weren't working the way we that we needed them to be working, and so they were they were useless. Um, and then uh, people started to fiddle with the trash pump, uh, which wasn't working either and so I was I went down in the engine room and I saw uh, Adam Prokosh down there scooping up debris um, out of the bilge which is what I said I was going to come up later um, so there were these just tons and tons of uh, just like pieces of rotten wood that he's scooping out of the bilge that kept clogging the bilge um, bilge manifolds and so we He's pulling it out, pulling it out. It's like, all right, I'm going to help. And so we're both down in the bilge pulling out all this debris. And he's like, hang on. Because he was using a, a spaghetti strainer. He's like, hang on, I'm going to go grab another one. It's like, all right. I don't see him again for a long time. It's like, oh, he must have found something else to do. So I'm down there um, script, uh, getting all this out. And then we get another call um, on deck. And at this point, it was stated that we were not allowed on deck because, uh, you know, we had waves going across the deck. The wind was super strong. And if you were on deck, it was likely you're going to get, you're just going to go overboard. And I forgot to mention that um, starting probably the third day, it became like a video game. And that every move you made, um, was like going from one platform to the next, like one of those side scrollers, and you're like jumping, but you weren't jumping. <laughs> you were like, all right, I'm going to go and grab that pin, and then I'm going to wait for the boat to roll up. And sometimes it would roll up like 90 degrees, and your feet would dangle, and then you'd roll back down. You're like, all right, now I'm going to go and grab that cleat. So you go, and you'd have to have all your moves. You know, you'd have to think about what you were going to go and grab when the boat rolled next. Oh my gosh. Uh, which is how much, I mean, we were rolling 90 degrees. We were dipping the yards in the water when we would roll. Consistently. 
Yeah. Um, and the cap rail. The cap rail was going under a lot too. So at this point, um, somebody said that something was pushing the boat over. Like really far over, farther than that. And so we're like, all right, we need to see what it was. So it was technically my watch, um, or Dan's watch. Dan was the watch officer, the third mate. And so it's like, we got to do this. It's our watch, even though it was all hands, right? Um, and so he stationed um, Anna in, the, uh, in the, the nav shack and said, if we don't come back, you know, you know note our, our location so we know where we went overboard. And he took a, <laughs> an anemometer reading. I don't know. It was <laughs> 115 knots of wind. Oh, holy crap. Yeah, so 115, that was the highest that we actually took. Because um, I don't think he did that again later that I know of. But at that point, we had 115. And he was like, once we're up there, you know, we're not going to be able to hear each other because it's too windy um so we have to have everything planned i was like well all right and the uh, the line locker was you know pretty inaccessible at the time <laughs> so he was like we don't have any line i was like well actually earlier when i was you know going to grab that vang i had grabbed a bunch of lines from the line locker and brought them up there and i hung one of them on the pin i, I was like maybe it's still on the pin we still weren't quite sure what was wrong um and but we were pretty sure we were gonna have to pull something down and so the plan was well we peeked out see what it was it was a small boat uh, the small boat was up in the rigging against the shrouds and all the wind was catching it and pushing the boat over even farther so it's like all right we have to get the small boat down so then we had to get the rope to get the rope so that two of them can climb up the shrouds on the leeward side that's dipping in the water and get the get the line around the rope and then I'm going to run up uh, the windward side I'm going to get the rope from them um, tie it down to something, get the other side and start yanking it down and then hopefully they'll be able to get over to where I am and the three of us are going to try to pull, pull this boat back down to the deck um, it's hard to describe, but that's basically what we did. Um, it was kind of crazy because I remember watching them on the leeward side and they were, you know, underwater almost up to their knees walking on the cap rail. <sighs> and I was going up the windward side walking on the sides of the cabin tops. And, um, we did have the rope. I gave them the rope. They climbed basically horizontally, upside down, up the shrouds, got it on the uh, the boat, and then we pulled it down. And the boat popped up a little bit. Um, but then every time we got hit by a swell, it went up, you know, 90 degrees again. And, uh, and then uh, Laura asked me to go below the bosun to go below and get some maintenance supplies in case we needed them from the bosun land uh, but she mainly wanted me to get our power tools so they weren't destroyed by the water 
So I went down and got all the power tools, put them in trash bags, and brought them back up. But as I went into Bosun Land, um, it was really eerie. Uh, Bosun Land on Bounty is huge compared to... I've been on like a lot bigger boats, but Bosun Land on Bounty was really impressive. Mm-hmm. So it was like a road like a row down the middle and then three rows to the sides um just tools 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 a lot of tools it was a really really well stocked and a big five gallon uh barrel of no 40 gallon barrel of um tallow was so nasty because it dripped it smells (laughs) but that's not the creepy part so you go down there it's uh or i go down there really eerie um the lighting is inconsistent because the generator keeps failing and uh, the main engine occasionally uh, because of the water and they get it going again. Uh, Matt Sanders and the engineer, um, Chris, were in there working on the generator and the engine all the time. And uh, so I'm in the um, bosun land, very inconsistent lights and gathering all these tools and I noticed that the water and the bilge is starting to breach the sole boards. And the sole boards are starting to get pushed up by the water. It's like, well, that's a lot of water because some of the bilges on the bounty are like four feet deep. So that means we have at least like four feet in the boat. Yeah. Um, so I bring all the tools up. Never saw them again. <laughs> What's the last time I saw those tools? <laughs> that was it. Um. Yeah, I said I'm in a trash bag, and that's it. And then, uh, <laughs> um, we had to, uh, our lights started to die, you know, because we had been using our headlamps for a long time. And most people take one light with them to a boat. But you know me, I always have a lot of lights. Yeah. And so, it's like, well, I have a bunch of lights in my rack. Um, got some dive lights. I can go try to get us some more lights. Because the lighting was now, you know, off and on, off and on. And sometimes you could see, and sometimes you couldn't see. And sometimes you couldn't see for a while. So I go down with my headlamp, and uh, I remember Jess Hewitt tied this uh, bandana on me that uh, um, Amanda had given me, AJ had given me. And I just always had that bandana, so they thought, you know, it was a pretty special bandana. So tied it on me, it was like, so that you come back and when she said that so at that point nobody was really acting like the boat was sinking yet at all (laughs) um but then when she said this is to make sure you come back and then she was like and i was like do you think the boat's gonna sink and she's like yep and i was like all right so now it's completely different because now the boat is sinking but uh still no coast guard call to my knowledge and so then i go down into (laughs) the new crew quarters which we've only had for a week so you know you don't have it completely memorized and there's no lights down there and so i just have my headlamp and when i start to go down the companionway i see it's full of water um about four feet past the soles and so the so there's about eight feet of water in there and so only about 
uh, I would say about three or yeah, probably about three feet from the water to the overhead. And that's it. Um, and the boat would rock and all these soul boards would go and slide to the other side and get smashed against the ceiling planking and they'd slide back and they'd get smashed and they'd slide back. It's like, well, I can't go in the water. I'll just get smashed by one of these soul boards and it's probably over my head. Um, there's no way I'll be able to swim with this boat sloshing around. And so I put, but I was like, but they need lights. <laughs> so I put my knees on one of the soul boards and I put my hands on the overhead and just kind of use it like a boat and just kind of floated on it. Um, cause we had, we had really large, um, soul boards and we would, the boat would rock and I'd slide down a little farther than I wanted to, or I'd get hit by another soul board. But eventually I got into my area, but I couldn't see very well because my light was going dim too. My batteries were dying and, uh, I was only able to get one light, but I did feel my fish tank. I had a pet beta fish. Um, in a large uh, peanut butter jar hanging from the overhead. And I was like, well, this is it for you, little guy. <laughs> I don't think you're going to make it. And so I got one one light. It was a headlamp I found. Um, but I couldn't see it. I had, was feeling around for it, and, which was hard to do because I'm floating on this soul board and the boat's flying around. And so then I worked my way back. I get out. And that was the last time anybody went below the tween decks. Um, except the engine room. We were still working yeah. in the engine room. Um, but go back in the engine room. Keep pulling things out. And uh, pulling things out of the strainer. And then the water is starting to come through the engine room now and it's also breached the uh the soul boards and it's getting to the point where it's um touching the engine and the generator and so we're worried about getting electrocuted and so we have to leave uh the engine room and the generator alone um which they eventually die you know the water comes in and then we have no power and the boat's just floating and no lights other than a few battle lanterns. So the battery banks were already shot. Yeah. Okay. Other well, we had a few um a few emergency lights. Yeah. So we did have some emergency lightings, some battle lanterns, and my one headlamp. But it's pretty dark. Yeah. Um you could see a little bit with the little lighting. And um but then there was a worry that if anybody went in there, they would get electrocuted. So nobody wanted to go into the uh, the engine room anymore. Um, and that was starting to fill with water. And, you know, during this whole course, I I saw Adam a couple times. Um, and he was laying on a mattress. I was like, oh, he's just tuckered out. <laughs> he's just really tired. He just conked out. I was like, no, that's not Adam. Um, so what had happened is at one point where the boat... Remember I told you at to time everything? Yeah. At one boat point when the boat rolled up on its side, um, 
he wasn't able to grab something. And so he started falling and he clipped his his feet on the um, the gun chest because we had guns on board, cannons. Most people call them cannons. And um, he landed on the back of his neck on the cabin on the other side. So that was probably about a 20-foot fall, if you look at it like that. We were 33 feet abeam, um, but then there were cabins on each side. So he probably fell about 20 feet um, onto the back of his neck. He ended up breaking his back, um, dislocating his shoulder and breaking three ribs. And he was just laying there. And But I didn't know but, that. But he didn't get, in the long run, he didn't get paralyzed from that. Right? No. No, he was very lucky. He thought he was paralyzed, which yeah. is why he was laying there, yeah. because he was trying to stay immobilized, which is hard to do in a rolling boat. Yeah, jeez, of course. So he was trying to keep himself immobilized so they didn't end up with permanent spinal injury. Yeah. Um. And then at one point, the engineer slid across the deck and broke his fingers, which is not good for an engineer to do. Um and they did make a call in the, or they they started to I gave my um my headlamp to the first mate and uh they started to try to make a call on the radios but they weren't working um where was the captain in all of this uh, he was with uh the first mate as well okay. in in the nav shack at this point oh where was he prior I don't know I'm not sure. Um, like I said, the mates did a lot. I don't know if I said that. Um, the captain did the overall stuff, but for the common crew, it was really the mates that worked with them mm-hmm. directly. Um, uh, captain Walbridge was kind of a, the mindset where the captain um, gives the tasks to the mates, but then is not does not have to be present for them to be fulfilled. So a lot of times... Um, he would be in the cabin during a um, transits during sails, and the mates would be running the deck. And he had a lot of meetings with the uh, the officers directly, but for the normal crew, we only really talked to him during musters for the most part, and that was it. Um, never hung out with him after hours, um, so I didn't get to know him that well at all. Some but some of the mates got to know him really well, but um, yeah, he had meetings with them, and then the crew only talked to him during musters. So the mates were the ones giving us orders, and I imagine got their orders from Captain Walbridge. Uh, but at that point, he was up in the nav shack trying to get a hold of the coast guard, um, but not to abandon ship. And he was trying to get them to drop off dewatering pumps to save the boat. Uh, but the radios weren't working. They weren't able to get a call out. So I had to resort to a satellite phone. And they were only, from what I was told, they were only able to get like one word out at a time. And uh, that was with great difficulty. And eventually they were able to get out our coordinates. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Coast Guard dispatched a C-130 um, in order to maintain radio contact. But he expressed that it was not um, 
that we were not abandoning ship. And so the plane, if you look at the interviews with the plane and stuff, or with the captain of, of the C-130, um, he talks about how um, it was expressly not a big emergency and how they just were requesting pumps. They wanted pumps. Um, but there was a problem with that, which we'll get to that later. Anyway, we uh, the crew started to gather some supplies because we started to think, well, maybe we're going to have to abandon ship. So we started gathering supplies, um, lots of life jackets, and I was actually tying them into rings of 10 and attaching uh, bags of water and food to each ring of 10 life jackets so that we'd have all these like little makeshift life rafts. We were um, distributing um, immersion suits as well. We had immersion suits on the boat and uh, type 1 life jackets to everyone and um, started to gather some other emergency supplies. We we're still trying to get that trash pump to work. We even uh, put it through a window in the aft cabin to get a straight shot. So it was in the same level with us, but couldn't get it to work. Um, and so then we took it up to uh, um, the weather deck. And uh, Jess Hewitt did get it to turn on uh, for a moment, but then it, it failed again. Um, no success there. And so we weren't able to dewater with that either. Um, at one point, I pulled out Claudine's old guitar uh, because I saw it floating at the surface in the lazarette um, and gave it to her, but uh, she wasn't in the mood to play. Um, so I uh, actually prayed with um, with Anna and Claudine for a little bit. Um, we had a little prayer session, and then... Um, Um, they were there was a lot of once the C-130 came right uh, so the C-130 flew over and everybody was like yay we have people here they're going to rescue us right we're good we're done everything's good now but it's a plane right so it can't actually pick you up can't actually rescue you they're moving really fast and I didn't realize how bad it had gotten but the um the plane was having a heck of a time you know they would get hit by an updraft and go all the way up and stall out they would get hit by a downdraft and almost crash into the waves um the the whole air crew except the uh the captain was airsick and throwing up um if you watch or listen to their their tale they almost died a lot of times like those people were brave coming out for someone they didn't don't even know and risking their lives is pretty impressive um but anyway they were there and now they knew that it was pretty bad and they were now we had radio communication and so the captain was constantly talking with the c-130 and he was really adamant about getting pumps getting pumps and the captain of the C-130 kept asking, well, how much water are you taking in? And it was a ridiculous amount of water because now the um, the lazarette, which was like um, a large area, was actually the officer's quarters. 
So there were, uh, I believe, four cabins down there, full mm-hmm. water, engine room full of water. All of the lower deck was full of water. So that's an eight-foot uh, overhead. So you've got your four feet in the bilge. You've got, like, the eight feet in the lower deck. So that's, like, at least 12 feet of water Jeez. in the boat. Yeah. It's a lot of water. <laughs> <laughs> and we're all on the tween decks. And if we go on the weather decks, we're going to get washed overboard. And the waters actually start, um, not yet, but it will, very soon. Anyway, so the water is right at the surface, right at the, the top of the lower decks. So you can see it. And um, still trying to get pumps. And the captain of the plane, you could hear him, was telling him, you know, even if we gave you our biggest pump, it's not going to be enough. The amount of water that you're taking on, it's just not going to be enough. And the closest pumps that we could get you are on a on a boat and it's like eight hours away it's the closest boat to you right now is about eight hours away and then by the time that boat got to you um you know it'd be too late you know you're taking on too much water and you know they're very reluctant to send a boat out in that sort of weather they'll do it but it's yeah. <laughs> you know that boat's probably going to sink getting there it's not a very huge boat either and the other boat that the only other boat that was um, actually sailing near us was the uh, USS Enterprise which was the largest ship in the US Navy was out in Sandy um, fairly close to us that's not the boat they were talking they were talking about a Coast Guard boat Mm -hmm. and um, my buddy was on it during the storm one of my best friends and he said that all the like a bunch of the windows in the conning tower blew out and they actually had the anchor thrown up on deck on on the aircraft carrier which is insane i mean that's a lot (laughs) of weight yeah and a huge ship and then that ship was decommissioned um after after they got back to port so it was a big storm that we were out in this little wooden now it sounds really small but a 180 foot wooden boat um in this big hurricane and we were right in the middle of it um you know they had changed course and went straight into the middle of the storm um i've heard there was a lot of debate over that decision between the uh the mates and the captain and a lot of debate about abandoning ship uh but the captain was extremely adamant about not abandoning ship um because he thought we'd be safer on the boat than in the water because it's wooden and so it's going to take a really long time for it to sink so I thought we could just stay on the boat well eventually the water breached the tween decks which is where everyone was um, I remember I had to use the bathroom <laughs> so I went over to the head and when I got there the toilet was underwater <laughs> so I just peed on the wall <laughs> it's like I don't even know why I thought this would work. Like, what was my logic? And the whole video game thing just to get all the way over here. Stupid. But anyway, very relevant. Um Adam was also on that side. So we had to shift Adam to the the dry side because the starboard side was quickly, you know, going underwater. And so we um we actually donned oh I forgot so right around that time 
um, the captain uh, was moving around in the tween decks in the aft cabin and he fell and when the boat rocked up like I was saying before when we would roll and he fell and uh, it, most people think he broke his back on the uh, table leg which was bolted to the floor because um, he just kind of wrapped around it and then uh, I did not the last time I saw him after that he was laying in his bed on his rack uh, looking at a picture of his wife and then um, yeah and then John or the first mate um, and, and the other mates you know were telling people you know get your emergency suits on we're going on deck because we're going to abandon ship and um, at that point it was too late <laughs> So uh, we put our emergency suits on in the tween decks, which, you know, under normal circumstances, you would never want to do because if the boat sank, well, then you just float to the top and you can't get out. But yeah. there's no way we would have been able to put on the suits on deck. The boat was almost sideways. Um, it just wouldn't have worked. You just get washed overboard. And so we put on the suits in the tween decks. We even put on uh, type 1 life jackets over the suits, which I don't know if I would do that again. Um, that made it even harder to move. Um, there were only three small suits, small emergency suits, and I'm 5'3". Uh, <laughs> I did not end up with one of the smalls. I ended up with quite a large emergency suit. And so um, the bottom of the suit probably went about a foot past my foot, and then <laughs> my fingers were just absolutely massive. <laughs> I couldn't grab anything. And they're like mittens, right? It's not like you have individual fingers. They're they're the mitt kinds, right? No, we did have the fingers, but they oh, were okay. too big for me to actually do anything with them. And so we, then we put um, climbing harnesses on over top. But I also had my climb, my personal climbing harness on underneath, and I had all my Fally weather gear on underneath. So I was heavy. Yeah. And uh, and my Fally boots were on under the emergency suit. Like, it was a lot. Oh, okay. <laughs> a lot of weight I was carrying around. And um, so, yeah, throw on another climbing harness on the outside of the suit. Uh, everybody did that. And um, couldn't tighten them, right, because of the Gumby fingers. Yeah. But one of the crew had a multi-tool uh, that he had his rig on his outside, which was pretty smart. Uh, because mine was under the Gumby suit because we threw it on in a hurry. And, um, yeah, he went around and tightened a lot, most of everybody's um, climbing harnesses. Luckily, not all of them. Um, and then they, they, they were useful for most of us, but for a couple people, it would have been really bad. Um, so then we ended up, uh, firelining all the emergency gear that we had tied into those uh, circles of 10 life jackets and all that up on deck and you know you see Dan's face at the capstan directing you to Laura the bosun over here gathering all these emergency supplies we go to the upper side of the boat which is the, the port side of the boat which is kind of high up in the air 
and we're tying all these emergency supplies together and everybody's kind of funneling up on deck finding a spot to like either help tie the stuff together or wedge yourself in so you don't fall overboard and um john the first mate is still in the nav shack um on the radio with the c-130 super calm he kind of talks like i do like i said we have a lot in common (laughs) but um so yeah the you know calm for the the pilot of the plane as well you know he could hear the calmness in his voice which he noted later yeah um, in an interview um so we're tying all the gear together we get it tied together and then we start to shift aft right so we're starting to shift aft and we find um find a spot and um i see uh, claudine is next to me um doug somehow fell asleep i have no idea how i hadn't slept for days at that point and some somehow he found the ability to sleep which is awesome <laughs> that he could it's really cool um, this is this is our old shipmate doug yeah like, uh, he's great <laughs> no, he's i, I love Doug. <laughs> but yeah he fell asleep oh my gosh um, that's amazing on deck during that that ordeal yeah which is incredible um but then i um yeah i see claudine for the last time um she looked at me with like this really determined face and then uh scampered across the deck to her her boyfriend and then that was the last time i saw her um and then um and then we we were starting to shift aft to go towards the life rafts or front it's like we're finally gonna do this we're finally gonna abandon ship and then the ship goes over um and then as the ship went um i had wedged myself in this really weird spot between the cap rail and the mizzen fife rail and so as the ship went over it was almost like in slow motion and i was actually standing upright and i was look i looked to the side and some people were hanging on pins and they let go and they fell in the water other people had fallen in the water immediately including the emergency gear and then i saw some people um like jumping in the water and so i'm in this spot and i don't see anybody left like i can't see any other crew members on deck it's like just me out of uh 16 people and i was like don't know what to do here uh, but everybody had that I saw had gone off in the middle of the boat. And so I just jumped towards the middle from the mizzen fife rail, went in the water. Which was a mistake. I should have went off the, the stern, gotten away from the boat. Um, because it was just like my mom said. Once you were in the water, the only thing you wanted to do was get away from the boat. The boat was like the ultimate death trap. And as soon as I hit the water and nobody knew John was still on the boat by the, during this stuck in the, the nav shack was filling up with water um, so he had to escape as the nav shack was filling with water with his suit halfway on and he, he shouted something in the radio it was the only time he was ever panicked on the radio and then the pilot knew that something went wrong and so, because we had never declared abandoned ship, so they never 
hadn't launched any helicopters yet or anything. Could you visibly see the plane through the clouds? Occasionally. Occasionally, okay. Yeah, they said they did that on purpose. So they tried to stay above the storm uh-huh. because they didn't want to wreck because yeah. it was really bad. Yeah. But sometimes they would fly low for better radio and just to, so that we would see them Yeah. for, like, hope. Okay. Yeah. Um. So then that was the last thing that they heard, and they knew that that meant something bad, and so they dispatched helicopters. Um, well, not yet. They said they were going to need helicopters. The helicopters couldn't be dispatched because the wind was too high. Right? They couldn't leave until the next morning. Okay. So we were on our own, except for the C-130, which can actually rescue you. They did drop some life rafts, but we never found those life rafts. Um and you know that because, well, I'll tell you later. <laughs> what time of day is it? It's at like two or three in the morning. In the morning. It's okay, so it's just very dark, dark at this point. Except the moon. The moon is casting weird shadows. Oh, wow. So there's there like a very bright moon. And so you're just seeing the shadows of this giant ship, which was once your friend is like now trying to kill you. As soon as you're in the water, I guess started getting sucked um into the ship and so i'm swimming as hard as i can at one point i think it was a girl um reached out and grabbed my hand and she was still on the boat um and then let go but she was trying well she was trying to hold me because i was getting sucked in and then um couldn't couldn't do so and i just got sucked underwater like a big toilet just like a spiral and I was getting sucked down <laughs> deeper and in, into the ship you know into that part of the ship that was taking on water and I started barrel rolling and swimming because I was a whitewater guide prior to this prior to tall ships and so one of the tactics you can use to break an eddy line for instance if you're swimming is to barrel roll while you swim so I started barrel rolling while I was swimming and I was able to break the suction and I was popping up to the surface and I had carabine to my climbing harness, my survival kit. There's everything in it that I thought I needed to survive. And ironically, my survival kit got entangled in the rigging. And uh, so right as I was about to um, break the surface and take a breath, I stopped moving. But, you know, when you're coming up to the surface, you have your breath timed pretty perfectly. Yeah. And so I breathed anyway and just breathed in diesel and uh, salt water. And then the ship, which was sideways now, um, um, half underwater, kind of turned upside down and pulled me down with the rigging and then came back up sideways but just shy of being able to pop my head out of the water and then back down again and then up again down again and up again over and over and over again and I kept thinking I was just about to be able to get air but then it would pull me back down and I was fighting um, with the rigging and trying to get it untangled and I couldn't do it and I was fighting with that the whole time and eventually my body stopped functioning so I lost the ability to move my fingers and my toes and then my arms and my legs 
and eventually my entire body all I could do was think and that was kind of in slow motion the thinking because I was thinking that the last thing I said on the phone to my mom and my little brother before I lost reception was that I promised I wasn't going to die and then there I was drowning and uh, I was also really upset about the situation because um, I didn't understand why it got to that point. Uh, like I don't, I didn't understand. Well, like, while I was underwater, I was thinking that everybody was dead, right? And I didn't understand why we didn't deploy a life rafts, why we weren't far away from the boat, why we, the coast guard wasn't there, why we were even in the hurricane. There were like a lot of thoughts that came into my head. Um, and then right before I blacked out, because um, it was pretty close, the bag broke and I popped up to the surface. <laughs> and then <laughs> it was really hard to move. Um, and I was coughing a lot because I swallowed a lot of water. And I was I looked up and I saw the, uh, the ship um, had come up again had righted itself which at first seems like a good thing it's not because <laughs> it's going to come back down and I was right next to it but I didn't know that yet so I see this pile of emergency supplies it's right next to me right where I popped up so I'm going to try to climb on top of it and I'm trying to climb on top of the pile of emergency supplies the cook pops up um, and when you're frantic you kind of grab whatever you can and she actually instead of grabbing the supplies she accidentally grabbed me and pushed me under and I was able to pop back up and eventually um, I was able to climb onto the supplies and I grabbed her and we were both able to get onto the supplies um, on top of this huge raft of life jackets with food and water I was like well if we can't get to a life raft we've got this thing and I was about to start like trying to swim it and I looked up and the ship was coming down and the main mast was coming right where we were laying on top of the supplies and so we rolled and um, as we were rolling the mast hit and it, we had tied them together really tightly and so it kind of like exploded and both of us were launched into the air and I had no idea where she went um, but it was so difficult to climb onto those supplies that used so much energy because one, I had just basically drowned and then two, um, we had 35 foot swells with wind waves, with wind waves that accumulate with 115 knots of wind. So when the wind waves would combine with the swells, sometimes we'd get like 60 foot waves and sometimes close to 70. and I didn't mention this, but when we were on deck <laughs> before we went over, the last thing I saw before I was standing there and the boat was essentially upside down was this massive wall of water. And, like, that's all you could see. Like, the water was just so high. And, um, and you could look up and everything was water. You know, I wasn't underwater, but there was this huge wall of water 
on the side of the ship behind me. Um, the ocean in front of me because the ship was flipping over and just the air was completely full of water because it was just torrential downpour. We might as well have been underwater at that point. And so getting on top of those emergency supplies was really hard because you'd get hit by the waves and just get blown back over and over again. And finally got there and then the mass comes down and flings us up in the air. And then you land it, and you're just in complete disarray. And I couldn't find the cook anywhere. I was looking for a while, but I couldn't find her. And I started swimming, and then another line wrapped around my leg and drug me underwater again. Um, and I had to untangle my leg from the line. Started swimming again, and I got to the mizzen mass. Now I was trying to get away from the boat. And I was like, all right. I'm gonna shimmy on this mast and get out of the water and because the boat was sideways again um, half of it was underwater so like half of the mast was underwater the other half was on the top so I'm on my stomach with this stupid Gumby suit trying to shimmy towards the end of the mast to get as far away from the boat as I can without being in the water where I keep getting tangled in the line it seemed like every time I went in the water, I got grabbed by something, like a like a kraken. <laughs> um, but as I'm shimmying away, and I'm pretty far along on this mast, the ship starts to rise up again. And now I'm like 30 feet up in the air. And I have this stupid Gumby suit on, so I can't hold on to the mast. And I wasn't sure what to do. And I heard someone speak, jump which was the weirdest thing because you couldn't hear anybody um, if you were above the trough of a, a wave and you had all that wind. You couldn't hear someone if they were like right next to your ear screaming at you. But I heard someone speak jump, and so I did. But I didn't want to because I was looking down and I could see just a whole mess of line floating at the surface and a bunch of wood like planks everywhere and I didn't want to land on the wood it's like 30 feet um, but I jumped and as I was falling I saw a little white capsule uh, far away um, in the distance and so I fell I didn't hit anything I didn't get tangled I just started swimming towards that capsule and I swam for a long time and eventually I got to it which was hard because of the waves. Um, and when I got there, I was alone. And every time, so every time I came out of something, you know, I popped out. Everyone, I thought everyone was dead. You know, every every time something happened, I just kept thinking everyone was dead. Um, and so I was trying to open this raft. And this is how I know that... Um, <laughs> We never got the Coast Guard rafts. Because both of the rafts that we got had um, wooden grating attached to the bottom. Because the rafts were attached to the grating, but the grating wasn't attached to the boat. So the rafts never deployed automatically. They floated off the boat, but you know where the hydrostatic release wasn't attached to a fixed point. The grating floated with the raft that's where the hydrostatic release was attached yeah 
Okay. And wow. so that, that's completely against regulations and any logic, obviously. And never deployed. Yeah. And so these rafts are closed, and I'm trying to. I pull the, the the release out, and it's long. It's really long, and I'm trying to yank on it, and I just can't get it to pop. Because you know they're they're designed that you deploy them from above. You know while you're on the deck of the boat and you have the water pulling down on them. But that wasn't the case here, and and just pulling horizontally with my body weight while floating just wasn't enough, and I couldn't get this raft to open. And then Dudester uh, popped up. <laughs> um, that's what we called him. Um, and he was trying to help and the both of us were pulling 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 couldn't get it to pop and the cook popped up again and uh, but then we'd get hit by a wave and roll roll a couple times uh, actually roll <laughs> because it's a cylinder uh, with the waves and try to get reoriented and try to pull again and get hit by a wave and eventually one of those really big waves that I mentioned came you know when the when the swells and the wind waves would line up, and it just launched us. It launched us really good, and the cook disappeared again. I couldn't find her, and then um, Dudester said, um, "So when you're in the trough of the waves, when you're low down, and the wind wasn't hitting you, you could actually hear people talking, which was amazing, uh, because you know once you're up at the top of the wave, you can't hear anything at all because of the wind, but in the wave, like at the trough." He could hear each other, and he was saying that he had seen, he could see lights sometimes, back on the ship. And the ship was so far away now, and we were like wondering if those were people stuck underwater. And so initially we started to try to swim towards it, but the waves were coming away from the ship, like towards us, and we just couldn't swim towards the ship to go back and look. But then um, we couldn't get this stupid thing to open. But luckily, an open raft floated right next to us. And so we, you know, pushed the raft in the direction of the ship, which didn't go anywhere because there's giant waves. But it, I mean, it launched somewhere, but not towards the boat. <laughs> and, uh, and we went to the open raft, and we got there. Um, Mark and Anna were already trying to get in. There were two people there, so there's two more people alive. And um, we spent about an hour trying to get into the raft and couldn't do it. And these are all like fit people that climb. You know, it's, it's a square rigger, so you're climbing every single day. And none of us could climb into this raft. Um, the uh, there was a handle but the handle was in the raft and you couldn't reach it from the water. And then there was a ladder, but the ladder was like, it was almost like electric tape. Yeah. Right. And as soon as you put your feet on it, it would go under the raft. Yeah. And so you couldn't use it to propel yourself up because you would, your lower body would go under. And I mean, we had done this in pools and you couldn't do it there. Just couldn't do it, mm-hmm. and and that's with you know three people pushing you up and you trying to pull as hard as you possibly could. And after about an hour of trying to get into this stupid raft, um, 
we decided we were going to hold on to the rope that's attached to the outside, right? And so we all put our arms in the rope, and um, <laughs> eventually the rope starts to pop off the raft. Just, And so now we can't hold on to the rope at this point. Like, I don't know, if, have you ever been rock climbing and you climb for too long and your arms get pumped and you can barely shut your hands mm-hmm. or you just been to that point like if you were working out or something and you just can't shut your hands anymore well wearing those immersion suits and trying to grab things like ropes and, and climb and probably just not eating or sleeping for days and having almost drowned we couldn't shut our hands so we couldn't hold on to this rope and so we're we have it like between our arms like we're hugging it but it's a little rope and so we're just slowly drifting away from the raft and it's the rope sliding out of our arms were you getting hypothermic at all at this point probably but that was the least of your concern okay <laughs> we were, i mean we were wet for four four days at least you know in the rain yeah just working all the time you, you just were never dry um, and the wind, you know, the wind saps a lot of your heat too. So probably, but who knows? Yeah. Does that would affect your grip for sure. Yeah. And you had a lot of adrenaline though. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but we decided that the raft was just going to float away and we would just be left raftless and we gave it one more shot. We pushed as hard as we possibly could and we got Anna in the raft and then we used our harnesses actually um, once she was in there she was able to put her harness out of the raft and then clip it um, to uh, mine and then she was able to lean back and I could use that leverage to propel myself up but the thing was right as I was getting um, up onto the raft we got hit by a wave and it wrapped my legs under the raft and I thought it broke my legs oh man that hurt so bad uh, but it didn't but it really felt like it and um, and I got in the raft and then um, I thought I heard something on the other side of the raft and Anna was helping the next two people you know uh, Mark and Dudester and I thought I heard something on the other side so I crawled to the other side because it felt like I had broken legs and I unzipped the um, that that door, and there were three more people there. Oh wow! Yeah, um, on the other side, there was uh, the second mate and Doug, and uh, the cook again. <laughs> and the cook has an interesting story. She said the the first time when the mast hit and launched her in the air and she fell, she said she gave up then. Um, and just um, wasn't going to try to hold on anymore. And then a wave took her to us at the closed raft. And then it took her away. And a wave took her to the open raft. And somebody grabbed her. <laughs> Pretty crazy. Um, but it was very hard to get them in. Um, Matt was is a lot larger than me. Um, and I was leaning back and got him in but then um, Doug and and Jess were so tired it was 
a lot of, but we got them in as well and then there were seven of us in a raft it's the only people we knew were alive were the seven of us out of uh, 14 and then um we looked around there was no food in the raft no water uh, no signaling devices <laughs> the only signaling device was Doug's EPIRB which had a broken antenna which he did activate um, but the Coast Guard never got it probably because the antenna was broken the only water was um, somebody's Nalgene that had like a quarter of a bottle of water in it and that was it that's all we had in the raft it was a quarter bottle of Nalgene and Doug's broken um, EPIRB and I had a oh I had a scuba mask or a dive mask on that was helpful it was really helpful the salt water in your eyes being able to see it's useful uh, but so we spread ourselves out to try to keep the raft from flipping over we couldn't inflate the bottom because we knew it would just flip right over so we left it full of water we had about two feet of water in the raft we started to get cold because we were just laying there and um Every once in a while, one of those huge waves would hit and literally just fold the raft in half. Like, um, like a taco. Like a taco. Called it taco. <laughs> <laughs> and you launch to the other side of the raft. And we were spaced out very evenly so that when you launched to the other side of the raft, you smashed into the person directly opposite of you. Um, so uh, me and Mark bounced our heads off each other several times. It did not feel good. Um, and then you'd crawl back because nobody had any energy at that point. It was really hard to move. Uh, Dudester took his immersion suit off. was able to move a little better. But my my suit was com- like just full of water. Because when I initially got sucked under, the suit filled up. It was so big. It wasn't really keeping me warm. You know, it needs to be kind of tight so your body heat can warm it up. So it wasn't really keeping me that warm. And my boots fell off. My Fally boots. So they're just kicking around at the bottom of this suit. And just wearing a suit of soup. I don't know. It's horrible. Did you ever consider taking it off to try to get into the raft more easily? We probably should have. Oh, okay. Is that something that you could have physically done? Was that doable? I don't know if we would have had the energy. Okay. And with the waves and the threat of getting launched away from the raft and then not having your suit and not having it on, that would have been a death sentence for sure. Okay. There's just no way you would stay afloat with those waves. Yeah. I remember we had immersion suits and Type 1 life jackets on. And, it was, and we were still getting sucked underwater. Yeah. And the water's foam, right? I mean, it's not as buoyant as like, yeah. normal salt water. Exactly, yeah. It's really aerated. It's a lot of oxygen. So, yeah, we're, we're in the raft for hours, and uh, people start to ask about, you know, do you think anybody else is alive? And Matt was uh, uh, immediately said, yeah, everybody's fine. Just to, you know, keep morale up. 
and but then you know people start worrying again and so I had everybody hold hands and go around and pray um, and when it got to Doug it was he was funny he said I don't believe in God but I leave, believe in the Coast Guard <laughs> <laughs> Doug <laughs> That's so Doug. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> He's a funny man. And then, um, and then we started singing a Mingle a Boat song. Mm. And, you know, you'd be singing, you get tacoed, <laughs> and you just drag yourself back and start singing again. And then after that, um, we were just trying to relive things, fun things, trying to keep morale up. Because we were in there for a long time. Um, and then daylight came, which most people thought was a helicopter, but it was the sun. <laughs> um, and then a couple hours later, a helicopter showed up, I think around 11, I want to say. It's 10 or 11, but it was a while. That we were swimming and then in the raft. And uh, it took about 20 to 30 minutes per person to get out of the raft and into the basket and into the helicopter. And we had seven people in the raft. And they removed four. So about two hours. And then the helicopter left. But they didn't say they were leaving. Wasn't there a dive guy helping you? Yeah. There was a rescue swimmer. Okay, yeah. Yeah, rescue swimmer comes down out of the helicopter with his fins, comes in really jealous of his immersion suit and his helmet and all of his gear. I'm like, man, this would be so much easier if I had that on instead of this. <laughs> this sucks. Um, he immediately stuck his head in, like his body, his front of his body, and he was like, you guys ready to get out of here? And the raft taco on his head. Oh, no. And he fell out, and we thought he was dead. But then he popped back up because he was wearing a helmet, which is smart. Jeez. Um, because that would have been horrible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but yeah, when he popped back up, he was not joking. After that, he was very serious. <laughs> um, and yeah, so the, he took four four people out. Um, and then it was just, and then they left. Uh, we didn't know why they left. We had theories. We're like, well, maybe they're full. Maybe they they caught, you know, maybe they rescued everyone. And they're full. They have to take them back. Mm. Um, but actually, they had run out of gas. They had already pushed it past their limit, and they had to get back, or they would have just crashed too. You know, this is a over two hour helicopter ride to get there and back, which is a long ride. In that wind, yeah. this is still fifty knots of wind, and uh, there's still thirty-five uh, foot swells in that and those wind waves. So there's a lot that, that guy was swimming against, and a lot that the helicopter pilot was flying against. They're not supposed to fly in winds that high. Um, they could have easily died as well, just like the C-130 pilots, and um, and they never swam in anything like that before either. And if you watch the videos, you can see uh, every time a wave comes too close to the helicopter, it's like altitude, altitude, and they have to ascend so they don't get hit by the waves. And um, 
but yeah, the helicopter was gone, and it was just me um, and two other people on the raft, and we're waiting for about two or two and a half hours for another helicopter to show up, and it finally did. <laughs> You're like, all right. <laughs> so the other helicopter showed up, and he asked me to come out. And as soon as I got out of the raft, it flipped upside down, immediately capsized. Um, and the helicopter pilot, like, oriented the helicopter above the raft. I don't know if he did this on purpose or if it was a coincidence, but it flipped the raft over, like the updraft from the rotors. Yeah. Like, flipped the raft and righted it, which was really good because our raft had a canopy that was intact. And there's no way that the two people that are in the raft would be have enough energy to swim against their immersion suits, find the door, and get out. They would have drowned. So they flipped the raft back over. You know, eventually got them in. But it's interesting because there's a lot of parallels between what happened to my group and what happened to the other group. So when I got in the raft, uh, up in the helicopter. I didn't see any of the faces of people that were on my raft. So I automatically knew like what who most of the other survivors were. There's six other people up there. And um, they start talking and we realize well, they had the same problem. Right? They couldn't do anything in their their gumby suits at all. They couldn't function at all in their suits. And then their raft was also closed. Mm-hmm. They got the raft that I pushed over. That that uh, that me and Dudester tried to open didn't work and we pushed over that's the raft they ended up with but there were six of them because they had formed like a little circle an arm circle yeah and they were all floating together instead of separate and um that was the group that had all the captains <laughs> and the people had all the training <laughs> um but yeah they uh they were pulled and pulled and pulled on that cord and it took them so long to get that to pop with six of them and they finally got it to pop and the same thing happened they couldn't get in it they gave up they held onto the rope the rope broke they tried one more time they got one person in then they were able to get the others and the same thing again when they were down to three people when the third person got out the raft immediately capsized so you had to have at least three people to balance it. And luckily, um, their canopy was torn. And Dan and Laura were able to get out. Uh, pretty crazy stuff, though. And then, you know, you're in the helicopter. And you cannot move. Like, nobody could move. Um, it was amazing how little you were able to move. Um I guess because the suits, like one gallon of water is about eight pounds, and your suits are full of water, and you couldn't move your legs. It, it felt like your legs were paralyzed. And uh, everybody had the same problem. So your, your leg would start to hurt, or um, would be falling asleep, or you just needed to move it, but you couldn't do it, so you'd have to ask somebody else in the helicopter to move your leg for you. It was crazy. And we had nine people nine survivors plus the 
the basket guy, plus the swimmer, plus the pilot, plus the co-pilot. So like 13 people in this little Coast Guard helicopter, which is not meant to have that much, that many people in it. And so we were literally laying on top of each other too for like a two-hour helicopter ride, and it was turbulent. There was no guarantee that that was going to make it back either. Then um, land it. They cut the bottoms of our suits and just poured out water. And then we still needed help walking, even without the water. Um, if you look at any of the pictures, there's somebody on each shoulder is helping people walk. So you just couldn't walk anymore. And we landed at the uh, Elizabeth Station station um the coast guard station in uh north carolina because we sank in uh, cape hatteras and um which is the atlantic graveyard it's not a good place to sink and there were so many reporters everywhere but the coast guard did a really good job at keeping them like away but you could see them all around the fences but the cool part was that when we landed, it was like a welcoming committee. Because right in front of you was the Coast Guard, and there were firemen, and police, and paramedics, and EMTs, and Red Cross, and just everybody was there, like, to welcome you <laughs> back to land. And uh, so that was, that was nice. And they got us in the station got us showered we all had these blue jumpsuits and orange socks because you know we lost everything and that pretty much except for what you were wearing um doug managed to save a bear anna saved her camel and laura saved part of her blankie um other than that i don't think any personal items were saved oh that that bandana that i forgot about but somebody tied to my harness that was yeah um, it's crazy um, so we're at uh, the Elizabeth station for a long time and the news reports are that had come out while we were still out there there were already news reports coming out they were all wrong uh, the first one said that you know we were like a 330 foot long uh, six masted schooner and that um, all 16 survivors were safe and in uh, Coast Guard boats. And that was wrong. <laughs> um, some of them said that, you know, two people were alive and um, everyone else was dead. So 14 people were dead, which was the opposite of what happened. Mm. Some of the the news reports said that 14 people were dead. Wow. Uh, which is pretty bad for your parents and everybody at home. And so, like, it didn't stop, like, after the shipwreck. It took a long time for things to resolve. The Coast Guard gave us a call. We were allowed to make one phone call. And I called my mom and told her what happened. And she was able to tell people that I was all right most people did the same thing only Doug's cell phone worked after that I don't know how but it did and um, 
And then we had interviews with the Coast Guard, each person individually, to discuss what happened right there. <laughs> like Battleshock debriefings with the Coast Guard. It was a lot. And then the Red Cross set us up with a, a hotel, undisclosed location. We weren't allowed to tell people where we were at first so that, you know, the media wouldn't. We weren't allowed to talk about this event until December. Um, that's December 10th. We sank October 28th. We weren't allowed to talk about it to anybody about what happened exactly until December 10th, except for one press release that we did, which I'll tell you about in a second. But then we went, we are in this hotel, this undisclosed location for uh, most of the night. And some of us tried to take a shower did not work <laughs> um, for most of us no, um, most people were not able to take a shower um, as soon as you like got in the shower you just started swaying so much you couldn't stay standing and if you close your eyes like you fell over <laughs> it was crazy You're like Lancer. yeah like you know how you rock when you get off a boat but yeah. to an amazing extent <laughs> uh, you just it was really hard to get a shower and then uh, sleeping for most people was difficult um, there was just so much going on in, in our heads that sleeping was like impossible at least uh, you know if you did sleep you you woke up pretty soon <laughs> yeah because everybody was having bad nightmares and then um, we were monitoring the news trying to figure out what happened to Claudine and and Captain Walbridge and eventually a news report came out and said that uh, they found Claudine and they said that um, they didn't say she was dead they said that they found Claudine um, and so we thought that she was alive right? they said unresponsive because that does not mean death right? unresponsive you could just be knocked out yeah, um, just unresponsive. The verbal stimuli, you, could, you know, it's a lot of unresponsive. Um, <clears throat> and so we were all super happy. And then the Red Cross said that they were gonna come and pick us up and take us to Walmart to get some clothes. And right as they showed up, another news report came out and said that she had passed away. And so then everybody was super sad. And so then, um. 12 of us because two people went to the hospital right away um, the two people with the worst injuries um, so um, the first mate John Svensson and Adam with the broken back and the ribs and the shoulder what they weren't with us they were in the emergency room what happened to the first mate how do you <laughs> well remember I said he was stuck in the nav shack right yeah so he had the get out while water was pouring in uh, with half a suit on try to get his suit on as he's moving and then he jumped into the water right and he uh, <laughs> he finds Anna and and Mark with that life raft but it's closed at that time mm -hmm. and they're trying to they're all trying to open it together and um, they couldn't do it 
you know, just like everybody else. The three of them couldn't open the life raft, not from the water. And so they're pulling, 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 couldn't open it. And he happened to be positioned over a mast like I was. And when the ship rolled up, it picked him up, but he didn't let go of the ripcord. And that's why I opened. He just held on to it as he was being hoisted up by the ship on the mast and it popped the life raft open which is why Anna and Mark had an open life raft and then he fell and landed on the deck um, from, from pretty high up and he had to limp and get back in the water again and then as soon as he got back in the water he looked up and the mast started coming down on him and he put his hand up and uh, he got hit by a yard and it broke most of the bones in his hand and broke bones in his in his jaw and in his cheekbones and somehow didn't knock him out I don't know how and he was the other diver on board and maybe that's why because he was wearing a dive mask as well and um he had a snorkel and he managed to get away from the boat and then he looked around and there was nobody it was just him and he could see like I thought he thought he saw a life raft like way off in the distance but he knew there was no way he'd get to it and so he just floated there alone in the ocean at night <laughs> and Eventually, this, um, um, called it the Man Overboard Kit, floated around right near him. He was able to get to that. And the Man Overboard Kit was a gray trash can. I don't know how he found it, but he found it. And he opened it, and there was a strobe light. And that's why the helicopter found him because they actually found him hours before they found anyone else alone at night with a strobe light. Pretty crazy. But he had swallowed so much salt water um, at that point. So that was the, the big emergency. It was all the water he had swallowed. And I mentioned earlier about the climbing harnesses not being great for everyone. Yeah. Um, Drew and Jess had clipped their, their harnesses together so they wouldn't get separated. When they jumped in, they jumped in together. Yeah. And um, a mass came down between them and pulled both of them down. Um, <laughs> and they were trapped on either side of the mass, held underwater by their lanyards that were clipped to their climbing harnesses. Um, Jess's harness had been tightened but Drew was one of the only people who hadn't had his harness tightened and so he was able to slip out and that's why they made it it's crazy and Adam drug himself and just flopped off the boat the one that had a broken back and everything Yeah, and just floated around and found that ring of people and they got him into the raft Jeez. he had like he couldn't swim or anything but he made it yeah 
yeah really like by like odds and everything like that nobody should have probably survived but I did tra I did train a lot and um, like I said we did have a pretty good crew all things considered <laughs> and um, so I think that helped a lot and there's the God factor probably had a lot to do with it um, and uh, yep and then we went uh, like I said we went to Walmart and it was right after hearing of Claudine's passing and so everybody was in like bawling and and then we're supposed to go shopping and we walk into Walmart like I said not showered most of us wearing blue jumpsuits having been shipwrecked and been in the water for hours and in the rain for days and not eaten or slept wearing orange socks and blue jumpsuits walking through Walmart 12 people was probably a really weird sight. And at Walmart, that's saying a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, they gave each of us a hundred dollars, and we bought some shoes and took clothes. And then we had to. Um... So I wasn't dating Allie at the time, but. We got a second phone call. We got back from Walmart, and I called Allie for some reason, even though we were just friends, but I liked her. And um, her dad picked, and, and her mom and, and her, they picked up my mom, and they drove all the way down to North Carolina and picked me up that night. They drove all the way back. <laughs> Pretty crazy. And then we started dating three days later. So all you have to do to get a girl that you like is get in a shipwreck. It's that easy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. Um, and then we had nonstop uh, phone calls and uh, people coming to our houses and just, just nonstop uh, reporters and, and things trying to ask us uh, questions and we weren't allowed to talk about it and it was pretty hard to deal with it was pretty annoying there were people whose grandmothers had reporters at their house they didn't even live anywhere near their grandmothers before we were rescued like Drew's grandmother had reporters at her house they didn't even know if he was alive yet uh, insane and that boat had a lot of media it was in a lot of movies and a lot of things that made it famous and then um, we had to go to Florida for a weekend and for 24 hours um, we had to talk to the Coast Guard and then to an insurance agent who just um, he reimbursed us for what we lost while on the boat so the possessions we lost on the boat. Um, and then uh, that's it. <laughs> but yeah, we had a very in-depth, very in-depth meetings with the, the Coast Guard while we were in 
Florida. And then while we were there, we had to do a press release, um, which was a real pain. Is that that group interview that the folks can see online? Yeah, that's that group interview that you can see online. Some of it's good. Some of it's, like, copied and, you know, they extract things that you say and move them around and mm. stuff. Um, but there were certain things that the the crew specifically said they did not want to talk about, and um, they were the things that he talked about. So it was annoying for, it was annoying for a lot of the crew. Um, there was also a, a lot of things that we weren't allowed to talk about, and so he'd ask that, and we he knew that, and he would ask those questions, and we'd have to answer them weirdly, so that we're not saying things that we're not allowed to say before the tribunal, because then in December we had a twelve-day Coast Guard tribunal in front of three uh, Coast Guard commanders. Which handled it great. I mean, um, the Coast Guard commander was amazing. He uh, listened to everything you said, did not try to put words in your mouth, did not try to interject or, like, insinuate anything. He listened to everything you said. He was really good. Um, Some of the lawyers there weren't that unbiased. And he let them know (laughs) (laughs) and threatened to eject them. It's interesting. They they handled that really professionally. That's most of it. (laughs) Yeah. I'm sorry, Josh. I'm sorry you lost your friend and your captain. Obviously, if you could do it again, you wouldn't. <laughs> no. Right? No, nope, I would not. Um, I'm very for, cautious about that now. A lot of, I've, yeah, a lot of the old expressions aren't necessarily true in modern times. Like the boat isn't necessarily safer out at sea. You know. Correct. Buying a, <laughs> buying a breakwater at a dock is a lot safer than out at sea in almost any circumstance. Yeah. Um, especially in current times. And, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. There were a few other, like, like leaving the boat. The, the boat, you know, one of the things you hear is, oh, yeah, you, you don't leave the boat, the boat leaves you. Unless that platform becomes unstable. Yeah. And, and, it's, and it will get unstable at some point. And, I mean, you know that better than anybody. Um, one of the things I was impressed with when you came on Lady, uh, Lady Washington, uh, is that, well, well for... <laughs> You, because um, I remember you came in the aft cabin and you're like, you know, Johan, I, I got a, I got some safety ideas for the boat, <laughs> <laughs> and I was all here. I was like, yeah, tell me, send it. And you had a list, of course, <laughs> it's like, like a list. page and a half long. <laughs> it's, it's like small print. I was like, oh boy, okay. <laughs> and uh, we went through it, and there were some great ideas. There was honestly some stuff um, because a lot of times regulation. Well, first of all. You can overrate, regulate things. You make it to where nobody can function, right? Yeah. Um, so that's something that government and Coast Guard have to be mindful of. Um, but also, 
also true is that sometimes it takes a while for regulation to catch up with the data in the real world. And so some of the stuff you said made perfect sense after hearing your story and hopefully well to folks like uh, the idea of having kayak helmets. Yeah. You know, where, I mean, and that might have saved Claudine's life. You know, who knows, right? Right. I mean, it was, it was her head that got hit. If I People think that she may have gotten hit in the head. Yeah. She did have a cut, but also she could have just drowned. That's Nobody true. Knows. But yeah, like kayak helmets, you know, um, just because they're designed for water, they're designed for multiple hits. Um, right. They're durable, but easy to, you know, functional. They have to be, right? Yeah, exactly. Goggles. I remember that was one thing you suggested. Yeah. Goggles are really useful. <laughs> they really are. Heavy, like, heavy winds and hail and rain. Yeah. I mean, John said if he didn't have his mask and snorkel, he would have died for sure. He said there's no way Jeez. he would have been able to just swim in those in those huge swells and those huge waves. Yeah. What else would you say to somebody who's trying to prep a storm kit? Like, like for serious, like, yeah, we made a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> Um, what's something that they could have? In like a, a personal kit? Like a personal survival kit that you're just like, bam, grab it, helmet on, goggles on. You know, I, I was thinking, I mean, I, I don't know if they're practical, but like those roller derby wrist guards. No. I, mean, I just, I know a lot of sailors have gotten their wrists broken in heavy seas. Um, yeah, that's true. And, and as long as you still have your tactile, you know, as long as you're able to move your fingers, should we, I mean, at some point you lose your finger feeling anyways you get too cold so. right i mean i know we couldn't move at all yeah i don't know if that was the cold or the fatigue or just a combined combination of everything yeah which is probably what it was <laughs> i didn't even talk about the fires there were fires there were five fires on board what yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh there was just everything Holy everything God. you can think of yeah there were electrical fires there was a grease fire <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, it was crazy. It was a crazy situation. It was never one thing happening. It was everything. There were peas everywhere. Peas? Yeah. The cook tried to cook peas in the microwave, but then the peas escaped. Do you um, see any cockroaches lately? I think we got rid of the cockroaches. <laughs> okay, they weren't swimming for <laughs> no. dear life. They just gave up, huh? <laughs> yeah. Hot dog water and just hot dogs flowing everywhere just like she was trying to cook the whole time and just it, it was impossible I, I just ate at one point I did eat like hot dog bun it's like the musicians on the Titanic <laughs> yeah just exactly keep cooking <laughs> she was holding on to the <laughs> that was her first time on a tall ship it's the craziest <laughs> thing um but a personal kit um definitely a PLB so a personal locator um, beacon because you might not be able to get to the EPIRB it's good to have one with you um, yeah I, I keep a mask and a snorkel because I'm very comfortable with a mask and a snorkel I could be face down in the water for hours and you don't have to expend any energy you're not treading water you can just float there for hours it's, I think that could be life saving um uh, definitely a life jacket. That's important. <laughs> um, a strobe light, a mirror, a flashlight, a waterproof flashlight. So probably a dive light. Um, a whistle. Um, probably big, big whistle, not the little, little sports whistles. No, I like the storm whistle. 
the brand is Storm. They're really loud. They're supposed to be the loudest uh, whistle you can get. So I really like the Storm whistle. Um, one one thing folks need to know is you get really really cold. You can't you kind of lose the ability to talk and yell. Yeah, it takes energy and you don't got it. So the whistles whistles important. you can still do for a little bit longer before you go. Yeah. Um, I keep a wetsuit hate it the immersion suit <laughs> I keep a wetsuit um, with uh, dive gloves and booties not that I'd have time to put them on if it was sinking fast but if I have time I'll put them on um, and I keep a, a neoprene hat as well not the full hood but a hat at least a neoprene hat is nice so you've got you've got your your temperature regulation at least for a little bit mm-hmm. that'll help for you know hours not for days. It's just a wetsuit, but it'll help for hours. Um, I like to keep a little bit of water with my kit and a little bit of food. Um, something that has a lot of uh, calories and is in a water-type container. And if you've got space for it, I would throw in sunscreen, um, chapstick, and eye drops, cause your membranes go. Wow. Yeah, like your your mucous membranes, like your lips and your your eyes, they start to dry out, and it's hard to function. And that's just from the salt. And I imagine if which is what we were dealing with. But I imagine if we were out there for days in the sun, yeah, you'd want some sunscreen. Yeah. But that's a really basic kit. If you had big, a lot of space, man, <laughs> there's a lot you can do. <laughs> I got a list. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. No. Well, no. thanks. Thank you, Josh. Thanks for, for sharing your story. Really appreciate it. Um, Want to end on? Uh, we'll we'll do another interview at some point. My goodness, you you tell <laughs> stories all all day. <laughs> um, they're they're incredible, all of them. Uh, but I, I would like to end on. So you you mentioned your your now wife, mm. the, the gal you know, Allie, you called right after. Yeah. The second call you could make. Um, uh, congratulations there. Thanks. <laughs> um, yeah, so why don't we we'll leave it on a happy note? Can you tell us what your first date was like with Allie? What what'd you do? Oh wow! Can I just quick tell you what the first words I said to Allie? <laughs> sure. So I met her in molecular biology class, and she had on a shirt that said "Get in touch with your inner shark." And I was like, do you swim with sharks? First thing I said. <laughs> I didn't say hello. I didn't say what's your name or my name. I said, do you swim with sharks? And she said, yeah. Wow. That's all I needed. It worked. Yeah, that's all I needed. <laughs> uh, so first date, um, we went biking on the Schuylkill, kayaking on the... So we went kayaking on the Schuylkill to our bikes and then biked to What's the car. A it's a river. Oh, okay. And then we biked um, for a while. 
and we also went rock climbing over at the Bird, uh, Birdsboro Rock Quarry. Um, we went hiking, mm-hmm. and then we went to a place where you could do um, bowling and laser tag, and we did um, we did those. We did a uh, mini golf, indoor 3D. Uh, glow in the dark mini golf, um, the only kind of mini golf really. <laughs> uh, <laughs> went to an arcade, um, and oh, we went to a trampoline gym. <laughs> it was a good day. I think at the end we did go to a movie as well, <laughs> at the movie tavern. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the movie tavern is a place where. Um, they they serve you meals while you're watching the movie, so it was like dinner in a movie. Good, yeah, it's good to, yeah, you don't want to, don't want to do too much too no. long on a first date. So it's good to combine things. That's that's smart. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, to keep it small. <laughs> uh, well, you certainly live for the moment. Yeah, it's a big world. There's a lot to do to do all right josh well thank you very much uh, folks hope you enjoyed this interview hope you enjoyed your time with us uh please you know we're gonna have a patreon out i promise uh, feel free to sponsor uh, me and my shipmates here um check out the kids book i wrote grace captain the world and the sequel grace captain the world 2 not about me obviously <laughs> and um yeah hope everybody has a wonderful day and uh just uh yeah, just live live for the moment, live for the day, and for God's sake, don't go out on a boat in the middle of a hurricane if you can help it. <laughs> uh, wishing everybody a fair winds and a following sea.